Can I ask you all to please take your seats and we'll get started. Thank you. Good morning and welcome everyone to the Cube Invest today, both those who are with us in person and those attending online. My name is Paul Lewis and I look after investor relations at Cube. I firstly like to, in the spirit of reconciliation, on behalf of Cube, acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people here today. For those of you who have followed the Cube journey over many years, you'd know that while our vision and strategy have remained constant over more than 15 years, the business itself has changed significantly over that time. The most recent significant change was the sale of the property and warehousing components of Moorbank, which completed in December last year. In addition to delivering significant value and cash for Cube, that transaction returned Cube to its origins of being a highly cash-generative, leading logistics operating company. Given that transaction completion, we felt it was an appropriate catalyst to hold an investor day to uh, tell our existing investors as well as potential new investors about the Cube business, our key markets, the sites in which we operate, and why we remain very optimistic about the multiple growth opportunities facing our business. I'd firstly like to introduce the members of the Cube team who are here today. Uh, if you can just make yourself known. Paul Digney, our Managing Director. Mark Ratton, our Chief Financial Officer. John Digney, Director of Logistics and Infrastructure. Michael Souza, Director of Ports. Todd Emmett, Director of Bulk. These are the presenters today. Uh, also attending Shane Collins, our Director of Strategy and Development. Ben Pratt, Director of Corporate Affairs. William Hara, our General Counsel and Company Secretary. Emily Link, Director, People, Culture and Safety. And Belinda Flynn, General Manager, Safety, Health and Sustainability. Uh, you'll hear from a number of these individuals, as I mentioned, who will take you through their respective businesses. And we also have other key members of the CUBE team around today. And I encourage those who are here in person to reach out to them during the breaks and after the formal end of the, the day just to hear, so you can see firsthand the vast experience we have amongst the team, but also the passion and enthusiasm we all have for the CUBE business and outlook. Um, you'll see the agenda today, so the intention is to go through the key business units and talk a bit about the outlook um, from, from the key team members. Um, as you'll see during the course of the presentation, CUBE operates in over 160 locations. So given it's not practical to actually do site tours to visit the physical locations, we've put together a number of videos showcasing uh, the diverse nature of what we do, our scale and competitive strengths. And we'll be showing those videos throughout the day during the presentations. For those who are in person, we've placed USBs on the table, which contain today's presentation, as well as all the videos that we'll be showing. And there will be links to these videos uh, on our website as well. These videos really showcase the substantial investment the Cube has made over many years in infrastructure, in property, in equipment, in technology, and of course in people to build unrivaled scale and capability. This has and continues to enable Cube to deliver superior, reliable, and valued logistics services across our core markets, and has enabled Cube to become the market leader in what we believe are very attractive markets, 
with a highly diversified long-standing customer base who understand and value the unique services that Cube can offer. There should be ample time for Q&A during the day and online participants are, are able to submit questions throughout the presentations via the box on the right of the streaming platform. There will be a short Q&A session after most of the speakers and we ask that you limit your questions to the content of that speaker. At the end of the day, there will be a general Q&A session where all the speakers will be on stage and you can ask any other questions of, of interest or any questions not covered. To the extent that we can't get through all the questions during the formal allotted question time, we will post the Q&A somewhere on our website with the main questions and answers. And as always, investors or any party are free to reach out to me after the day with any further questions they have. In terms of structure of the day and other formalities, the agenda is on the screen. As you'll see, we'll have several short breaks with the aim of having a longer lunch break around 1.15 and concluding the formal session at 3. For those who are in person, just some formalities, the bathrooms are located out the doors and to the left. In the event of an emergency, the emergency uh, evacuation door is, is to my left. Um, proceed to the nearest stair and do not use the lifts. We ask that everyone in the room please turn their phones onto silent and not use them during the day, or if you have to, please go outside. Uh, online participants will be muted throughout the day, um, throughout the presentation, and as noted, can submit their questions online. This Investor Day is being recorded and we will make an edited version available as soon as possible after the day concludes. With that, I'd like to get things underway and call our Managing Director, Paul Digney, to start the presentation. Thank you, Paul, and good morning, everyone. Um, a little bit about myself. I, I've been a CUBE since day dot, so I'm 15 years CUBE. And as Paul just mentioned, I'm very passionate CUBE, and I won't apologise for the passion that's going to be shown today by myself and my team. From time to time, and in recent times, we get a lot of questions asked, or the same question asked, Cube's, Cube's quite big, quite complex now. What's inside Cube? How does it make it? How, how does Cube work? What makes Cube tick? And more importantly, how do you fully value the future value of Cube? So today, over the next five five hours, myself and my team will use using a, a logistics term. We'll try and unpack Cube today for you a little bit further than you probably had seen before. And as Paul mentioned, we've got a number of fantastic videos that demonstrate a lot of our supply chains, which will be better than any site tour that you've ever done, I believe. So wait for those videos. You've got, you've got a virtual tour over the next five hours. And hopefully by the end of the day, you will know a little bit more about Cube than you did before you walked in this room. And you can better appreciate our key strengths, the quality of our diversified and integrated and robust business model that we've built over the last 15 years, and the many opportunities, growth opportunities, and the avenues we have ahead. I'd like to start with Cube's vision and strategy to kick off the introduction to Cube and, what, and, what we've, and how we've got to where we are today. A vision that has not wavered and a strategy that has not wavered since the start that has just strengthened. There's a bit in this slide, so give me, a bit, give me a couple of minutes to go through this slide. In 2007, we set out an ambition, an aspirational vision, which I'll come back to that later in the presentation, 
to be the leading provider of integrated logistics solutions focused on the import and export supply chain in Australia. And along that journey, we expanded this vision to also capture the forestry market in New Zealand, the energy markets in Australia and Southeast Asia, and selective domestic supply chains in Australia, usually driven by our customers. On this slide, we highlight our key operational and key focus areas. You've probably seen this slide before. Most of, the, most, of these, most of these focus areas are unchanged from 2007 and have grown to be our key strengths. They are listed on this slide and I need to call them all out to give them justice. They scale and expand capabilities, diversified by market, customer, product, service and geography. Invest in key infrastructure assets. Drive innovation and technology in initiatives. Focus on safety and our people culture. Build a highly experienced team. Focus on delivering positive customer and shareholder value. Maintain a strong balance sheet for funding and growth. Ensure we remain lean with variable variability in our cost base remain highly diversified and agile to manage downturns in sectors and to manage any inflation. A key strength and a key strategy has, has been very effective at this point in time for us. And to drive, and Mark will touch on this later, to drive financial cap uh, accountability at all levels within our business, which are now over 200 profit centres. And in recent times, we have added a decarbonisation plan to our operational strategic focus. All these areas I've just mentioned have focused our strategy to deliver a sustainable, competitive advantage against our rivals. These focus areas will continue to be our strategy and our strength going forward. I thought I'd set aside 10 minutes, it's really important for me to do this because I like telling this story because I've been a part of the story for 15 years. It's to set the, set the scene around our history and the story of Cube and how we've evolved. Over the next three slides, we'll break down Cube's evolution into three five-year periods, highlighting some of our key milestones, our brand development over the 15 years, which, which will demonstrate our deliberate strategy to secure locations, expand management and expertise, expand services, expand products, expand by geography across many supply chains and to consider new supply chains in our portfolio. I'll kick off with the period 2007 to 2011 before the Q brand. For me, this was a really exciting time we were a little bit raw, we were small, and we had to take some calculated risks. Within the first year of this period, the GFC hit. It was a no moment for us. We were very small and we had to make some considered calculated decisions. Do we go hard? Do we become conservative? But we made some calls 
and we've got some investors to invest more money in us, and we're able to build some acquisitions in that period. So what comes first in, in this period was the initial P&L acquisition that provided the platform to start up our container logistics business and our automotive and general stevedoring business. And we organically started the global freight forwarding business from day one. The period focused on building scale by smaller bolt-on acquisitions and securing key ports and rail sites. And winning key based contracts such as Woolworths, K-Line and WWL in the 2007 year. During the period, logistics operations expanded its footprint further in Fremantle, Brisbane, regional Queensland and Adelaide via modest acquisitions. As you can see on this slide, there's names Bagley, Sea Cargo, McKenzie's and Tronks. They are all family businesses that joined the Q family. We made investments in, in automotive logistics businesses such as AHC and Preco and we also made an investment in NSS, a port and logistics company in far north Queensland. And in the back end of, of this period, the early, the early foundations of our rail, our bulk and our energy businesses were being developed. We focused our rail business on the import and export container supply chain. The bulk business started up a big development at Utah Point and the energy business focused on the oil and gas market. We also secured an initial 30% interest in Moorbank during this period with partners Stockland and QR. And at the back end of this period in 2000, 2011, the Q brand was created. Two thousand twelve to two thousand sixteen. The Q brand. We've got our own brand now. We're getting serious as a company. We're building a corporation. And actually the plan that we start off with is, is, is putting is coming together. So the Q brand emerges with a number of supporting sub brands, which I'll start to refer to Q brands from now on. Within Q Logistics, Q Logistics expands further in acquisitions in Melbourne and Sydney and develops its intermodal capabilities in metro rail hubs in Sydney with the development of the Minto and Unora intermodal sites. Our specialised logistics brand commences on the back of, of a CRT and an IML acquisition. QRail expands further, now it's starting to provide bulk rail service, not just container rail services. In the ports and, bulks, in the ports and bulk business unit, Q-Bulk expands its footprint across Western Australia with the help of the Giarchi acquisition. And Q-Bulk rolls out its first Rotobox customer being Sandfire. Q-Energy gains momentum with its first, first major customer win in Chevron. Q-Forestry commences with the acquisition of ISO in New Zealand and the Cube arrives in New Zealand. Other key highlights to note here Cube buys 50% of the Patrick's container terminals with Brookfield as a partner. I'll talk more about Patrick's later. Also in 2016, Cube becomes the 100% owner of AAT. And Cube makes further investment in Moorbank by buying out its partners in that period. 
2017-2022. Further growth and expansion. Another exciting time for Q. We've got scale. We've built scale now. And we have emerged, if we hadn't emerged already. Everybody wants Q. Customers come to us wanting us to do a service. A bit of a reverse procurement approach. Employers want to be employed by Cube. And now some of our competitors want to know what Cube's doing and they want to be like Cube. So in 2007 to 2022, the Cube brand emerges even further. Within Cube Logistics, Cube Agri brand emerges with upcountry storage expansion for grain. And with the acquisition of the Newcastle Agri Terminal in Newcastle just recently and the buyout of the Quattro shareholders at Port Kemba, providing Cube with two export grain terminals in New South Wales. Cube Logistics further expands its footprint across eastern Australia with the acquisitions of MCS and Chalmers and builds new warehouse facilities in Melbourne and Brisbane. In the Ports and Bulk Business Unit, Cube Bulk further expands its, its footprint organically, setting up operations in Esperance, Albany and Wyala. Cube Energy expands offshore into Southeast Asia with a joint venture with BMC constructing a port supply base facility in the region. Cube Forestry commences in Australia, developing out a footprint both for export and domestic customers. And ISA New Zealand rolls out a world first log handling solution with our robotic, our robotic log scaling machine and a new technology, new technology, a log grab ship loading solution that has never been done before. And Cube Renewables as a brand emerges. Begins on the back of the LCR acquisition as the decarbonisation era starts in Australia. And with Moorbank, construction commences in 2017 and at the end of 2022, Cube monetises the Moorbank property and warehouse development to, to Logos, but retains a majority interest in the rail terminals and the logistics operations at Moorbank. 100% ownership in the IMEX terminal and a 65% interest in the interstate terminal, which is still being built. And on the back of that, the Cube Intermodal brand starts to assemble. The team will talk more about all these brands later today. Just to quickly summarise that, I know there's a lot of history on that, but I thought it was important to spell that history out. And some of you, yeah, some of you people would be aware of that history, but I'm very proud of that history, and it needs to be told again. And it sets up today in regards, to, in regards to the other speakers and what they're going to talk about and, and so you can understand the history of Q. So the brands of Q today look like this. This is where all the brands sit, the business brands sit within the, within the operating division. And I won't, I won't go through these now because the business, the business unit heads will talk more about this in more detail when they go through some case studies and some product and some of the products and the services they provide later today. But just on the right hand side, side of this um, slide, slide is our joint ventures and I'll, I'll just call them out um, for reference now. So Patrick's, obviously everyone knows, I think in this room knows Patrick's and I'll talk about that uh, later today. BMC is an oil and gas supply based joint venture with two partners, 
Gallant Ventures in Cinetech, where Cube Energy manages that port supply base today, and Michael will talk a little bit about that later today. Precar is an investment in an automotive and pre-delivery business with our, with our partner, K-Line. NSS is, is, is in far north Queensland, as I mentioned before, still in logistics business with our partner, Glencore. And IMG is a joint venture rail business with our partner, Watco, that supplies our cube rail operations in Western Australia. Cube organisation structure. This slide is really for reference inside the presentation deck. I'm not going to go through each of these services because that's going to be the job of the team today. Um, so it's just, this is just a reference slide and you've probably seen this slide previously in, in um, presentation decks. Okay, I'm going to have a little bit of a break now. I'm going to show you a video. It's a video called This is Cube. It's a bit of a snapshot of what Cube looks like today. Since founding in 2007, Q has provided safe, reliable and efficient logistics solutions focused on import and export supply chains. Originally founded as a provider of container logistics, automotive and brake bulk services, today Cube has evolved to become Australia's leading supply chain logistics provider. We service a multitude of industries handling more than 5.3 million TEU and over 140 million tonnes of bulk commodities every year and growing. We support our customers with innovative and efficient logistics services with the transporting from mine to market, port to warehouse, manufacturer to retail shelf, paddock to port. We deliver integrated logistics services across the complete supply chain from beginning to end. Cube has over 9,500 employees in over 160 locations throughout Australia, New Zealand and Southeast Asia, servicing a multitude of customers and their integrated logistics needs. We are committed to safety and zero harm across our operations. We invest in innovation, infrastructure, strategic logistics facilities, technology and people to deliver across the entire supply chain. Cube's strong business foundation supports a sustainable future for all, helping communities, industries and our planet to thrive. We deliver every time. This is Cube. just a teaser of the other videos that are going to come later today, so there's more to come. Um, the next, next three slides demonstrates the scale of what, we, what we've built so far with our strategy and explains what underpins Cube today. This slide here highlights Cube's workforce and the geographic footprint. We now have more than 160 locations, I think as Paul had mentioned in his opening speech all across Australia, New Zealand and the selective Southeast Asia. This highlights that we've got 9,500 employees today, including Patrick's employees. 
we're servicing approximately 2,400 customers, which is, this KPI doesn't mean anything, but we've got four, four people to every customer, but anyway, it's a stat. The next slide here is Cube's key infrastructure assets. Total operation sites spanning over 1,000 hectares of key, key logistics infrastructure. I don't think we ever imagined in 2007 that we'd have that span of operations sitting under this infrastructure as Cube. I think it actually went past our aspirations at this point in time. So for us, I think some, some people see us as a logistics company just running trucks and, and trains. But what underpins our business, what underpins our supply chain is this. Over a thousand hectares of key logistics infrastructure that we operate through. They include 70 port, op port terminals or, op or port operations. 14 rail terminals. Now two export grain terminals. Over 60 hectares of warehousing over 25 hectares of bulk storage for mining commodities in the, in the bulk business and over 150 hectares of container park storage or container storage across Australia. We've built this so far and we're only going to build it out further. The next slide here highlights our investment in quality equipment and the size of our fleet today. We have a large equipment pool. But this large, this, 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 this large equipment pool is very mobile and is a key strength for us in our ability to mobilise for new business and be agile and to relocate between businesses when there's peaks and troughs. We've got a very diverse customer base, very diverse by product. If one area is down and we've got a pipeline of growth somewhere else, we can relocate equipment across Australia to service that customer. It's, and it's really powerful for us to be able to get to have that when someone wants to start up fairly quickly. And on this side here, you'll see the I won't call all the all the, all the fleets out, but all our equipment now has replacement programs which include includes transitioning our equipment to lower or no carbon use assets into the future. There's a little way to go with this, but the first thing we're doing right now is we're currently, over the next one to two years, we are doing trials on all these types of equipment, either be electric, hydrogen, or any, any other alternative fuels. We're, going to do, we're committing ourselves to do trials on each part of this equipment. I don't think any other logistics company is making that commitment right now and that investment to do. So, what does 2022 and beyond look like? Passion again. With a strong portfolio of infrastructure assets and strategic locations, adding the cube expertise that we've built, the workforce that we've got, the culture we've got, and the systems that we've, been, that we've created, our business foundation is very strong. We have a large amount of options to grow within our existing business, 
which we'll demonstrate throughout today. And as we have done in the past, we'll also look for new markets and services on the journey ahead. For example, our two new brands or sub-brands you saw on the brand side, being Cube Renewables and Cube Intermodal, are new and are evolving at this point in time. So I believe the next five-year block this sets up to be the most exciting in Cube's evolution. And this takes me to the next part of my intro presentation, Cube's key markets and growth drivers. Firstly, I'll touch on our key markets. Cube's key markets, which is summarised here, are contain oh sorry. Are containers, import and export, agriculture, automotive and general stewarding activities, forestry, project cargo, resources or mining resources, and energy. As you see in this slide, we haven't captured all, all the products and, and the, the activities that fit in this slide, but in the following slides, when we break down per market, we actually list, list, list those. Because there are so many products, which I call sub-markets within the market for us to grow, to grow through, and many services where we can grow through. The respective business units will talk further on these products and services later in their presentation, including providing a current outlook on the healthy growth pipelines by market and product. Just for an example, and I won't take you through all four slides here, um, just on this, on this slide here, it has the container, the container market as one of our key markets. And as you can see here, it highlights a lot of key products, which I call sub-markets sub of the key market. From import products as groceries, grocery products to polymers, to export products such as dairy to meat, meat exports, we do, we do all this at this point in time. Not for everyone, and there's plenty, plenty of room to grow in all these markets and sub-markets. This highlights the many, the many logistics services that, provide, that we provide these customers in this key market. I will now skip a few slides and take, and, and take the deck to slide 27. So one of our key slides today, probably one of the money slides today that I want to take you through. This is my slide, so I better get it right. I know you've just seen the video, this is Cube. This slide is, this is Cube, the business model. Our growth is driven by many, many drivers, and I've summarised them here into three areas. The first area is our existing customer base, which when we was talking to, to outside people, they feel that this, is, this is, could be the, the main driver, but it isn't. It's our base. It's our base volume. It's the growth by product demand from our existing customer base, our, consist, our existing contracts. But this tends to be a small part of our growth each year and our growth opportunity. It's our base, but it's a very diverse base and it protects us and it's a very robust base. The second area here is within the existing market, market share growth, within our current markets. Although we are a leader now, 
in the key markets we operate or near on leader. Most of these markets, we don't have, we don't have a dominant market share. As markets have, uh, most markets are, are very fragmented with many competitors. We back, we back our product now to win market share. We have the opportunity in most markets to grow substantially by winning new customers, building or expanding that infrastructure and sites, or from a bolt-on acquisition, as we have done in the past. And the third area on this, on this slide, in the, in the multiple volume drivers, is something new. A new market, and as I mentioned before, currently is cube, cube renewables, or cube intermodal, or cube something else. Or a new product that we haven't handled within an existing market or a new service that we haven't yet provided within the existing market. Something new can be organically built or it can be built by acquisition, which we've done in the past. This takes me to the second, part, second message in this slide, which is basically Cube's DNA. It's our business model. That's Cube 101, which is combining our, our volume growth with our diversified value drivers delivering benefits of our economies of scale for both Cube and our customers. Our diversified value drivers come in many forms. A couple of examples here. Multi-customers using multi-purpose purpose sites. There's economies of scale in that. Multi-customers optimising large truck fleets. There's economies of scales in that. Delivering productivity via technology and innovation. We have a very good track record on that item. The economies of scales of our overhead now that we've become such a large business. And creating customer value through our integrated supply chain which potentially, which potentially creates pricing value. So today I believe we are in the best position ever to achieve our, the best out of this business model. Delivering long, sorry, delivering sustainable, long-term growth, both top and bottom line. Why is that so? It's due to our size now, and it's due to the op opportunity that we see ahead that we'll be able to deliver more value going forward. I'd now like to take a break, and I'm going to show you two videos. The first video I'm going, to, I'm going to show you is a video, a cube integrated supply chain <laughs> for many customers. It is the journey of a container from, being, from an import to an export. Sometimes in that journey, for many other customers, we will touch this container many times. There may be up to 10 transactions on the, on the freight both ways. So 10 transactions, 10 revenue opportunities. So this, this video will demonstrate a container going through Patrick's Port Botany onto the logistics, the logistics um, operations, import operations, through, through transport, warehousing. It'll end up at a container park, a cube logistics container park. It'll then get ready for export. It'll then go on the export journey through cube logistics, through transport, handling and packing. And it'll end up back at Patrick's to be exported overseas 
to its destination. I'll now play this video. The shipping container was invented in the 1950s, providing a simple solution to transport all kinds of products around the world. By using a standard and consistent size of container, the shipping container could be transported using ships, trucks and trains, creating an intermodal solution. Today, container handling is a key element of logistics services provided by Cube. The container follows a journey throughout the supply chain and Cube provides services to support the needs of our customers at each stage of the container journey. The life cycle of a container in Australia can last months and within that time could be handled multiple times. Initially, a container will arrive into Australia via sea freight and be handled by a stevedoring company to discharge the container from the vessel. The container will then travel by road or rail to an intermodal operation or warehouse. Cube provides logistics services via both truck and train directly from port. Rail provides a more efficient and environmentally favourable transport solution. A single 600 metre train can move 84 containers in a single trip. When arriving at an intermodal terminal, a container will either be transported to a yard to await transport to a customer, staged for loading onto a regional train service, or moved to a cube warehouse for unpack and storage. For those containers requiring transport, Cube can manage loading and distribution of a container to a customer's final warehouse. For containers where warehousing and distribution is being managed by Cube, Cube will transfer the container to a Cube warehouse, manage the unpack, including biosecurity and quality processes, pelletize and store goods. Goods distribution can then be directly managed by Cube at an individual pallet scale. Once discharged, a container will then be transferred to an empty container park operated by Cube, where several services can be provided, such as inspection, cleaning, repairs and preparation services, before being transferred back through the supply chain for further goods shipments. Containers being transported regionally will be staged and loaded for allocated regional destinations. At regional intermodals, these containers will be discharged, stored and then packed with goods destined for export markets before being moved back by Cube through the supply chain. The container is a key element of the Cube supply chain services. I've got a second video. It demonstrates the, integration, the integrated supply chain in another way. is the leading provider in Australia of integrated logistics services for renewable wind farm componentry, solar and supporting project cargoes. Utilising a broad spectrum of services across the entire Cube group, Cube offers an integrated logistics approach for renewable energy operators, from OEM to on-farm installation. Every aspect of logistics is handled by Cube, from freight forwarding with global shipping and logistics management to stevedoring services and management of containerised freight. Complex discharge processes incorporating heavy lifts without of gauge componentry up to 1,200 tonnes, 
lay-down area management, transportation planning and management, including support and service teams, full logistics services and heavy haulage from port to wind farm, as well as on-site lifts and installation management. Cube's ability to manage and execute these complex logistics projects is unrivaled in the Australian market. Cube is also well placed to extend its service, offering to provide long-term maintenance support to completed wind farms. What I was going to say before the video ran was the first video you saw was obviously an integrated supply chain with many customers. And that was, and that, the wind farm project there was one customer going across many parts of Kew. So it went from the AAT facility, the open access facility at, at Fisherman's Island. It was stevedored by the Kew Ports operation. It then trans, it, it was transported by a heavy lift and a re renewables team off port to a logistics site where we've got lay down here, we've got spare capacity for lay down here. This wouldn't have happened and you couldn't put this all together. No one else could put this all together in one shop. Then it was lifted back on through Todd's, Todd's team and the renewables team, the heavy lift, out to the wind farm location. So all across Q, we were able to deliver that, that, that supply chain. So I think that's powerful and the other video is fairly powerful because no one, no one would be able to touch a container as many times as we could through that supply chain that we just demonstrated then. And no one could actually actually do that wind farm logistics through just one provider being queued like we did then. That's what we've built. All right, my last part of my introduction, I can do it passionately too, is why queue? The first example here I've got is why queue a plan to thrive. This is cube to a T. We put a one cube program out, which is a recent program, and everyone jumps on board. Our culture is superb. This example is why people choose or should choose cube. This slide highlights our new Thrive program on one page. The program is an internal refresh to reflect on items such as our vision, our values and our purpose. This is a great example of why people should choose, cube, should choose Cube and will choose Cube. Thrive Program in the main is designed for us to reflect internally on what we've done well so far and recognise where potentially we could improve next. Across our strategy, our vision, our values, our purpose, our personality and our culture, our promise, and our priorities. Our priorities being safety, well-being, planet, opportunity and performance. The planet pillar is where our decarbonisation plan sits today. Thrive at Cube is a great example of how Cube looks to build on its key strengths and thrive. To never be too complacent, and look to continually improve, which is a key strength in itself. In the back of your presentation today, we have attached a Thrive booklet, and I suggest you take an opportunity to read that, and also our decarbonisation plan, which unless you may have already read that previously. 
slide, this slide here. This is another example why people should choose Q. And this is due to the key strengths that we have established as a market leader. This slide for me is the key why customers, employees and partners choose Cube today. Every box on this wall rep represents a key strength of Cube that we have built over, over the past 10, 15 years. Some strengths I've already touched on and some you'll hear more about as the day goes on. If it's a box relating to our integrated customer product in the middle of, of this wall, or it's a box that relates to our people, our expertise and our culture on the right side of this wall, or it's a box that relates to safety, sustainability and governance framework which we've built up over the last 15 years on the, on the left hand side of the wall, I believe we today lead our, lead our industry across all these boxes, if not most. And no one, and I can say this, no one puts it all together into an integrated logistics product in the regions we operate like our one Q product. All of our business units and their profit centres have these strengths and their tools at their disposal of the size of Q. And this is why Q. I will now start to hand over to the team to tell you more about their business and unpack Cube a little deeper and demonstrate by Cube a little further. Thank you. That ends my introduction. I'm going to hand over to John Digby, the Director of Logistics and Infrastructure. He's no relation of mine. Okay, you hear me fine up there? Hello? You got me? Good. Okay, as Paul said, I'm John Digby. Like Paul, I've been with the group since 2007, um, since the start of the P&O Trans acquisition. I've been the director of the logistics business since 2016, and then since 2020 I became the director of the, of the logistics and infrastructure business in the restructure. I think it was 20 or 21, around about that time. So I've pretty much been here from the whole journey as well. They just happens to be two years older than me. That's how it works, right? Maybe. Right, anyway, look, look, tell you, probably a bit more polished than I am, to be honest with you. Let's unbolt and see what happens from there. Okay, I'm going to, as Paul said, I'm going to try and break it down a bit further for, for the logistics and infrastructure business. Okay, okay. So Cube Logistics and Infrastructure is a pretty dynamic business and has been a big part of Paul's presentation, how it's evolved. Right? We're across 43 different locations. We have over 2,500 employees, direct employees. We, we would indirectly employ between 500 and 800, depending on scale, what's happening as subcontractors and, and things like that. We have over 1,200 customers that were built up over that period from 2007 to now, which is quite but dynamic for our business. And before I get into the Logistics 101, I want to sort of talk about what's on the right-hand screen, and that's some key drivers for our business. And first I'll talk about what happened between FY, at the end of FY22, what we did, what we held, and so forth. I'll start with the, the, rail, rail, uh, the rail business and the towns that we hold 
in that period. It held over five million tonne, which is a record for the Q business. That's picking up uh, six months of blue scope business and some extra grain that we picked up in that period. But that is a record for the business. And I'll talk a bit about 23 at the back end of this too, at the back end of this slide, because I'll give you a bit of a taster for what's been happening for the first quarter. I won't go too far, William, so don't worry, right? That's it. Uh, I'll, I'll always talk about port shuttles because that's my DNA. I've always been involved in the port shuttle business, the containerised business. As I said, I've been in it for 30 years. I feel like I am a container, so I always talk about that volume. And I think it's important for us to talk about that volume because as the IMAX, which is the more bank in the mobile terminal automation terminal, comes on live, which is starting to come on live now, there's always questions around, you know, when are we getting volumes to the, the famous million TU? So I'll always update you on that sort of stuff. As you see, we did 400,000 TU through the, through the network. That's not necessarily an IMAX. That's through the containerised rail business. It's always a growing market for us. It's, there's a, there'll, be a, there'll be a bigger growth this year in that period. And as I said, the IMAX facility over the next two to three years comes online. It's, uh, we're going to automation in, uh, well, basically, we're basically automated now. So we're at the first stage of that. So there's a real big growth area there. So believe in that story. It's true. It's coming. There is a mobile shift happening there. Let's talk about our warehousing business, which is an organic growth in, inside the logistics business. It, it basically has come across from, from the acquisitions we've had, not really the acquisitions we've had, but just developing from an import-export market, realising inside those businesses we can build warehouse scale. So we've built warehouse scale. We currently got over 60 hectares there, which equates to probably six... 600,000 square metres of warehousing on the roof, which is not necessarily big in the market, but we've got a, got a bit of a growth strategy there. We'll talk about that a bit. Paul spoke about a container, like a story of a container. I'm trying to break that down for you a bit further again. So we handle over 2 million containers through my network, which be it through empty container parks, freight stations, on the back of trucks, on the back of trains. So that's sort of giving you a, a gauge of Every time I handle a container, I would charge for a container. So that's the driver for this business. And the other, the new filling to the fold, or the cult to the fold, to the stable, sorry, is, is, the, is the agribusiness that Paul spoke about. Um, this is new. This, this evolved throughout COVID. We've got a fantastic asset in Newcastle now. We've got a fantastic asset in, in Port Kembla now. It's two great, two, two great export agri-terminals. Uh, we've got some great upcountry up accumulation now, and we do the part in the middle, the rail part. So we're up in that complete, complete solution. We're not, we wouldn't do all the rail part because it's too, it's, it's had a, it's basically had a record result in FY22. Since the inception of these two businesses, they've never done that volume. They've done, uh, one's done, the Newcastle business did about 1.4, the Kendall business did about 1.2 of that volume. And, uh, and again, I'll get back to 23 and I'll tell you what they can do. Right, so that's very, if you look at that business, it's very similar to the Grain Corp business in New South Wales. The only difference is that at this stage, Cube doesn't trade the grain. So as long as that infrastructure is full, Cube won't trade. So I'll, to, I'll stay on this side for one second because I just want to highlight the rail business, uh, especially in the bulk part, the 5 million tonne. Obviously that was a part, only a part year of Blue Scope, a part year of Grain a part year of not a full year of the, of the uh, grain, grain because we brought on some new bulk wagons. So there will be substantial growth in the FY23 for that, that part of the business. We're always growing the TU business, the 400,000 TU. That will grow again. That will grow bigger, in this, bigger probably in two and three years. Not really next year, but it will still have growth. 
Don't worry about that, but we'll still be growth. We see more growth coming on as the automation of, of Millbank and uh, some build up, some build out some warehouses there. There'll be more growth there. So that that's coming. As I said, I keep keep saying, don't lose faith in that story because that story is real. There is an overshift. shift. The warehousing business currently at the moment is full. Like most warehouses throughout Australia, they are choppers. When the supply chain changed, it's gone to just in case. A lot of the warehouses throughout Australia are full. However, we've got a great strategy there. We've got about 150,000 square metres coming on coming online between now and the back end of 23, and with a strategy to get to by by 25 to about a million a million square metres under roof. So we'll be a serious player in the warehouse business. Not that we're not now, and that's driven really by our container business, by the import export business. We're not in the domestic warehousing business. We're more in the more in the import export, which drives a lot of the warehousing business now. And the, well, the one I love, I'm an agri thing, one of my babies, Rail, sort of one of my babies too, uh, the agri business uh, this year. So if you look at, I'm sort of, that, that is like a harvest year, the 2.6 million tonnes, so that's CY21 to CY22. When you talk about harvest in that area, you're sort of, say, you're sort of saying November to October, that's what you're really saying. This year, we're already pre-booked from November, which will be a bit later because the harvest, because of this weather, will be a bit later. We're pre-booked to 3.4 million tonnes. So that gives you an idea of what, you know, if you can control the supply chain, what you can push through these things. And we have a stretch of four. So when I say we're pre-booked, we're booked. So a percentage of that is paid up front. Well, not necessarily up front, but it's a book. So part of, the, part, of the, part of that rate card, say 30% of the rate card is paid for. So it's been a real success story. There's plenty of, plenty of grain around at the moment. So, And as I said, we don't trade this grain. We just... Uh, facilitate the infrastructure, basically. But we own all the infrastructure. And other rail operators use these as an open access top regime, so tube would probably can't, we'll probably do over on the bulk, probably do one point two million of the three point four. Horizon might be in one point two and another company SSR might be in one point two. But they'll just do the rail piece, we'll do the upcountry piece and we'll do a lot of we won't do all the upcountry piece and we'll have customers who do that and we'll do all the export piece at the at the end of the lady in the vessel. So we're, it's quite a, we're quite excited about that business and that's only in New South Wales and we know that people have doubted we'll try out sometimes now but there's no drafts for a while and, and, and we think within this business there's area growth be it using Tyler Michael's business that have a lot of port locations throughout Australia where we can do part services maybe 600,000 tonnes through Western Australia for example or somewhere. Not saying we're going to just that's out there. So you know, that gives you a bit of a summary of where we're going and, and um, the airport first quarter. They're all unordered, but they're volumes that have really happened. So, okay, I need to look at this slide. We all touched on this slide before. Well, I didn't touch on this slide, but this this slide basically gives, breaks down the suite of services for logistics business and infrastructure. It's quite a busy site, as you can see. It's, it's got, I mean, there's probably 24 types of services that we have in place there. We have not one real competitor that offers all those services. But we'll have a strong competitor on rail, we'll have a strong competitor in ECP, we'll have strong competitors in areas, but they don't have the whole range of services. So we're offering the whole range of services. And, and you might ask, is that good or bad? Uh, well, I'll, I'll try and break it down to I don't know if this point of words, but oh, hang on. 
try and break it down a bit for you. I'll try and break it down a bit for you here. Um, on the containerized rail piece. Now, the containerized rail piece, where, where is it? I can't do it much. I have to do it much. So, we offer a, a, a containerized rail uh, piece for, as Paul spoke about, the, the journey of the container. Basically, the journey of the container. So, in 2012, we had a customer called Busy um, that we signed up to offer an export, export containerized service. Out of one of our facilities, one of the ECP facilities in Port Botany, we'd go to there, we'd go to one of our facility at Harefield, we take 70 40s down there every day, or six days a week. Our facility was our regional facility at Harefield where we would then take off the empty containers, reload that with the busy containers that would come from their mill. So busy was the biggest exporter in that region. We'd come from their mill, we'd reload it onto the train, the train would come back into an intermodal terminal in the metro precinct that Cube owned, and then from there we would then, uh, as the vessel opened up for receiver, we would deliver it to the wharf. Right? So it was a closed loop service that we offered, basically. So what changed from that? In 2019, so we had this contract for seven years with Busy. It's one of our biggest containerized export contracts we had for rail. What changed was that Busy decided that they wanted to have their own regional terminal. So with Wagga Council and, and with some funding from either the federal, federal or state governments, I can't recall which one it was, they built a terminal in, in Wagga, right? which meant that our pair facility was, was no longer, it was made redundant for the containerized business, which for us wasn't good at the time, but we understood why they wanted to do it. So Busy then also then decided to take the whole business out to tender, which they did. So we, got, we received the tender, and we looked at the tender, and everything in the tender we could do with our range of services we had. The only thing that was left out of the tender was the hair food piece. Right? So, so we looked at the tender, we could have replied in two minutes, we replied in four days without being arrogant because we just took the hair food cost out of it. Right? So then we took the rest of the tender to, to find, try and find the same suite of services. They can do that. There's no problems with doing that. But they went to one rail operator, which will be PN, the ECP was DP World, and the Innermotor facility was, was more than likely links, I think. I don't know for sure. So they only got the three operators to do that. In the end, that got too hard. What ended up happening, we just signed Busy for another seven years. We have the contract of 2029. And the reason why we've been able to do that is that we have the range of services on this wall that we've built over 15 years. So that was the reason. You wonder what happened to the Hairfield facility. You go, well, what, what did you do with the Hairfield facility? What we did with the Hairfield facility was we got rid of the containers in the Hairfield facility where we are in the process of doing that, and it's now a bulk facility feeding our Port Kembla agri-grain export terminal, which so has rail access. So in the end, it's been a, a good story for us, and we always go back to the, the, the world of services that we have there. Um, and it's just, you know, we're always in the game. We're basically always in the game with the customer. So we lost a small part of it, but we maintained another seven-year contract with Busy. So someone, it's just hard. To, not that Busy, Busy could have changed, but they didn't want to change and deal with four players. It's just too hard. So we offered that complete change. Okay. Um, all right. Let's see if I'm the right. The only thing I haven't touched on that slide there, and I will touch on it in the case studies, is that the agri-export piece, so I've got a case study on that, I've touched on that, and I'll, I'll touch on the bulk rail, and I'll also have a bit of a touch on the port, port assets. 
just in time. We're, we're seeing great demand support for poor business as it stands at the moment. So, and there's also a great area for future development there. Uh, so we've got, I think we've got a warehouse we're building just down the road there for 40,000 square metres. So, we're, so it's a, and we're, see this slide here. If you went to Fremantle, you went to Melbourne, you went to Sydney, and you went to Adelaide, even though there's no major container port for food there, you'd see very, very, very similar assets. Right, the type of services that are done, that are done here is road transport, container storage, empty container parks, warehousing, etc. So it is a, it's quite a strong strategic assets we have alongside the, all the container ports in Australia. The only thing we don't do here in this slide is, is, is we don't do much rail in Brisbane as yet, but we're looking to do some. Okay, I touched on our rail business before initially, and, and I want to talk a bit about our growing rail services that we have. There's a short video here, it's not that short, it's about four minutes, and the four minute video is about the Blue Scope journey that was started and the Glencore study. This is two, these are two uh, contracts that we run throughout the pandemic, but both of these customers come to Cube. We initially didn't go to Blue Scope because we thought, well, when, when I went to tender, they'll just price check this and they'll stay with Pacific National. So we, we weren't going to go there. We, they come and see Paul. We thought we were a bit of a stalking horse and they convinced us to tender. So we did. And our rail team really convinced us to tender. So we went about the tender and were successful in winning it. This is a little video. We'll show a video on that and a video on the Glencore train. The Glencore train is a train that we stood up in. Uh, April of 22, and that's a train between Man Eyes and Mines and Chancel. Yeah. Cube specialises in providing bulk and general logistics services on rail for some of Australia's leading industrial manufacturers and miners. Cube's point of difference has been proven as we have worked with customers to scope their requirements and tailor specific logistics solutions that enhance our customers' business offerings while leveraging the Cube Group capabilities. Cube has secured two large long-term contracts on the east coast of Australia with Bluescope Steel and Glencore which involve transportation services for more than 4 million tonnes per annum of mining concentrate and steel products. The Blue Scope contract is one of Australia's largest logistics contracts, transporting steel products from source of production to various destinations and end-user customers. Cube invested significantly in people, equipment and infrastructure to develop a superior service solution that aligned with the Blue Scope needs. Um, so Cube provide interstate rail services for Bluescape to Brisbane, Newcastle and Melbourne. Uh, in Brisbane we do direct transfers to Bluescape's customers. Uh, the Newcastle service is to another one of Bluescape's customers, ATM. And Melbourne is a bit more complex. We do transfer of feedstock from the Dynan Terminal to the Western Port Mill and we do transfers to SCT who provide the West Coast rail services to Adelaide and Perth. Um, some of that is on, on most occasions is raw material feedstock that becomes finished goods and then we also move those finished goods in containers um, to all of those corridors, whether it's to the west coast, 
back to Port Campbell. Overall, this year we're aiming to move somewhere between about 1.5 and 1.7 million tonnes. Cube worked with Glencore to establish and operate their rolling stock fleet to transport mining concentrates from their copper and zinc operations in Mount Isa to the port of Townsville. The rail service was established to provide a better logistics solution to transport these products, ensuring a safer, more environmentally efficient and manageable logistics outcome. Cube established a dedicated operations centre and team to service the contract and deliver superior logistics that aligned with the customer's needs. Uh, we run two trains out to Mount Isa Mines and back for Glencore. So we were doing recruitment to find extra train drivers. There is a labour shortage at the moment and the best thing we came up with was to put out a school. Uh, we got approval to run two schools and get some new people into the industry. It's not very easy to get in the industry unless you're sort of born into it or you know it um, or know someone in it. So we, we just put an ad out there and we had nearly 900 applicants for the positions and we got about 20 of them, so did two schools, and that's what they're doing now, getting trained up from DAs through to trainee drivers, and they'll one day be driving our trains out to Mount Isa and back. Cube has proven capability and capacity to deliver flexible and customised solutions, whether existing or new logistics requirement. Our ability to leverage our knowledge and expertise in supply chain management helps to deliver strong business outcomes for our customers. Our rail services are well positioned to encourage and deliver a quantum shift in the Australian market with modal shift opportunities. This opportunity provides a strong potential source of growth for Cube over the mid to long term. So as I touched on, I mean the rail business is a great growth area for Cube. Uh, we've grown substantially in the containerised import-export business and we'll continue to do that. Uh, we're now getting some real credibility in the bulk, bulk rail and we'll continue to grow in bulk. We see that good opportunity for us. But, uh, we're not necessarily doing, we like to do stuff with that rail infrastructure, but we, but we will grow in our bulk business. But where to next, right? So, with the, with the rail business, where do we go to next? So we go to, we're not going to go to coal, because we can't do that, and we're not going to do that anyway. So. So where do we go to next? Well, where we're going to next is, is we're going, as of Monday next week, we start a Melbourne City service. So we are going to begin an interstate service. I spoke about my 1,250 customers. A lot of those customers are on road now. They want to get the rubber off the road. They want to go to, they want to do this big motor shift that we spoke about. And so we are starting a setup, which is a bit of a hybrid service that will feed through our infrastructure. Uh, and either in Melbourne and Singapore, we've got uh, terminals at the moment. And then the view is to grow that services. So we've currently got on order 20 luggages and 30 wagons, which will get here between June 23 and the end of December. Right, so there's two different suppliers in America sponsor locomotives and 30 wagons, and they'll be a dedicated containerized. You know, we're not competing with the PNs, but we're doing a bit different. We're going to have a bit of a book build on this stuff. Right, some of our customers like a busy. Uh, he wants to get a lot of his stuff off the highways. He has a lot of domestic stuff down the highways. So, so a little book build. We do a bit different than that. So we're going to have they might take a third, we might take a third, etc. So, so we're just going to get us into that market and, and work with these guys. And, and um, we've got the terminals throughout Australia. We have a terminal. This is more on the east coast. This is going to happen at first. We're still still working through a Brisbane solution. We have Sydney and Melbourne 
obviously building the, the interstate service at, at, at interstate terminal at Moorbank and, and that seems to be really well sought after at the moment by all rail operators are very keen on that facility so that's going to get up and going pretty quickly we've got a facility in Dine in Victoria that we can run these services between and there's an op option we've got with the government with beverage that we're looking at too which makes a lot of sense to me we have our own terminals in Adelaide and we've got through our joint venture partners we've got three facilities in Western Australia which are more dedicated to import-export traffic but they have uh, access to innovative terminals right? so that's the next step for cube logistics and infrastructure in that piece is to, to it's a natural progression for us to now step into this this interstate piece but a bit different than how the other guys do it with him so that's a bit on the rail story I think I've missed much there I think the only thing I'd say about that is the highways are getting so much harder and they operate on the shortage of truck drivers. We don't see it in the metro as much, but on the highways and you know, the tough regional areas, there's a bit of a shortage out there still. So, And the cost now, it's a lot more expensive. There's inflation, so that's time to take away for you. Okay. okay, now this is... I'm trying to finish strong here because I've got a stage in the middle there. So, right, okay, so... Cube Agri, right? This is the Cube Agri business that Paul spoke about and I've sort of spoken about. This business evolved throughout, you know, it really did evolve throughout COVID, really, when you think about it. You know, this is the only, this is our latest big acquisition in the Cube Logistics Infrastructure was, Quattro happened before that where we took 100% of Quattro, which is the Port Canberra Terminal, but the NAP, the NAP purchase, the Newcastle Agri Terminal purchase was in 21 of September, so that happened through the COVID period. We got that one away, so it gave us what it's given us is given us a, a, a northern, northern export terminal and a southern one. So if you look at it, it's pretty simple. If you look at the slide up there, we have the regional storage and handling facilities up country. We've got, we've got three now with great loadouts. We've spent some money on the loadout facilities there so we can load trains a lot quicker out of there. Um, the third one being the Hairfield one coming on. Then our customers, our traders have some. So collectively we've got enough accumulation. Obviously we pick up some from Grand Corp sites, depends on where people buy from, but as a whole we've got we're building a good accumulation areas throughout throughout New South Wales. We have the rail capability, we spoke about that, we've got the rail capability and to handle the volume that goes through there. We probably won't, you know, get ourselves to handling four million tonne, we'll, we'll de-risk it a bit because other other rail operators are there, they've got the wagons there like I spoke about with the rise in the SSR. So but we'll always do probably say a third of the volume we're doing or, or maybe a little bit more. And then, and then we've got the two terminals, uh, one, in, one in Port Kembla and one in Newcastle. And at the moment, they're beautiful assets. I just love them. Right? They're fantastic assets. So I've got, got a video on that that takes you through the journey of, of the fiscal week. Flight that up. The process of uh, receiving grain is a truck usually which comes from farms, can be one of our trucks or an external carrier, comes across the Weybridge. Once it comes to the Weybridge, we weigh them, the truck and the grain. We take a sample. In that sample, we are looking for the protein content, the moisture levels. We're looking visually for uh, any impurities, i.e. weeds, and we're also looking for pests and insects such as weevils. Once we've established the grade of the grain, 
and a truck driver is provided with a location, a drop-off location. He will go to that area, whether it's a silo or a bunker. Once he's unloaded, he returns to the weighbridge and he will re-weigh the truck, which gives him the tear weight, and we deduct the gross from the tear, which gives us the product that we have received. We load a train uh, using grain from two areas. Farmers who have sold their grain uh, and the buyer have asked us to put directly on their train. We also utilise the stored grain, which is subsequently sold, and we prepare that to bring it in, put it in our pre-loading silos, and then we put it through a, a myriad of uh, augers and outloaders to fill up a train. In a train we usually do about uh, 62 tonne of wagon with a total of uh, 3,100 tonnes per load. So we travel from, predominantly from here directly to Port Kembla. It goes to one of huge green uh, terminals, Quattro. But we also have access to the other cube uh, terminal at Newcastle, which is NAT. It's easily a two-day turnaround. Quattro is a grain export terminal. We receive grain from our country sites. Uh, we rail and road it in. We store it here up to 100,000 tonne at a time. and then we load it onto the vessel approximately 50,000 tonne at a time. So the real driver for that business is the throughput. So as we said, in uh, CY21 to 22 harvest year, we did 2.6 million tonne. We've got a book, book now booked out for 3.4 million tonne and with a stretch target of four. So, and, and you know, it's in our DNA to try and stretch it. So I think we'll, we'll definitely get somewhere between that 3.4 and 4 million tonne. Okay. Um, so the last slide I've got here is just, just on uh, the bit of an outlook for our business, uh, short to medium term outlook on, on the products that we're all in and how we sort of got this slide together was we looked at our existing volumes from our customers, the markets that we're in with them. We went through there, we looked at our existing new business opportunities with our customers as well. That's how we sort of, the green means sort of high growth, uh, sort of above GDP I suppose. And then the, the meeting is probably GDP, and as you can see, there's not much low there at the moment because there's such a strong, strong demand for our services at the moment, a very strong demand for our services. We've got an extremely good pipeline there for acquisitions. We haven't done many because of the COVID period. We did the one in 21. There's a few, few we're looking at the moment, but we'll be patient about those, and we'll do them right. So we're working through that at the moment. Um, 
Well, just in closing, I suppose, if you can take away a few points from my presentation, but our business is very robust and very diverse model we've got here. Our people and our cultural drive the business. One thing I have in my business, I've had in my business since day dot, and Mark will talk to it a fair bit as well, is that uh, I have weekly accounting. I really love weekly accounting. It's, it's just a way of managing your business. I've got a lot of OUs, and so it's, so, and it teaches my people. So, it's, and I'm enjoying the container park. He's, he's in control of his P&L with his people. So, every Friday at about 3 o'clock, all the P&Ls come through, and they're consoled up by state on, on a state-based operation. So, and that gives me an opportunity with my people to be able to sort of, they can, they can get on and, do, and run the business. You know, if we've got a problem, we know what it is. The weekly account is forecasting, is flashy, but it's pretty, it's really spot on, really, to be honest with you. And, and so it gives me, if I'm talking to Paul and Mark and, and the team, how we're looking on the 21st of the month for a business that turns over 1.2 billion, I can be very close. And that's very important for Q, that's what Q have always done. And when Mark talks to the OUs, you'll see there's a lot of OUs, and they'd be scared of the amount of OUs. It actually creates managers. Or it actually creates people to understand their business. So that's a big part of our business, and that's why we've got a lot of good managers in our business. As I said, there's a very strong demand for our services. There's a strong pipeline discussions about acquisitions. Our financial first quarter is absolutely unordered, and I'm not saying anymore, but it's exceeded anything I thought we could do. To corner phase, I've never been busier. I'll take your questions. If you've got any. You look too serious, aren't you? <laughs> Thanks, John. So, if anyone has any questions, we've got some yeah. microphones in the room, so just put your hand up and um, check. Hi, it's uh, Owen Bill from RBC. Just a, a quick question. Great sort of breadth and depth, depth of, of services and products, and you obviously trying to make sure that you are so focused on each customer and each service that you're providing. Um, is there any concern internally that you are stretching yourself too thin? Uh, I mean, in terms of, you know, you're offering so many different varieties of services. Is there, is there a concern that you're, you're actually just taking on too much? Uh, no, I don't think so at all. I think as I explained, we probably didn't explain that while well, the busy solution there was having that breadth of services, even though we lost a part of the regional upcountry piece, by having that breadth of services helped us maintain the main part of that contract. Right, so I don't think so at all. And as, as I explained, all those breadth of services have small IUs. When I say small IUs, they might be, you know, 10 million turnover or something like that. But a manager is operating as well, that is, is growing with us, the management team is growing with us. They're looking to be number one, number two, number three, or number four in those areas, right? If you look at something like in the breadth of services, like a container high and sales business, we started that because well, we've got the infrastructure, we're handling containers all the time, Royal Wolf's a big player, STF's a big player. Part of these guys will use our facilities anyway, so why don't we get into this market? So we got into this market. We're probably number four in the market. The guy that runs it for me now wants to be number one and just holding back because, you know, container prices went through the roof like everything else in that market. So it wasn't the right time to expand into that market too far without doing it organically. So, so no, I don't think so. The only thing I'd add to that is you just look at the track record of the, the long-standing customers, the contracts were winning and renewing, so the customers are clearly happy with what's going on. And I think, as John says, it's a reflection of the quality of the management and the depth. And we are always expanding the team. When we do acquisitions, often a key part of it is the management expertise. We are investing in systems. So we don't take it for granted. We're continually investing and improving to make sure we, we keep delivering. So I'll tell you what we don't do, right? 
This is, this is, this, I'll give you two. We don't do the rest of the services. Probably should have done that at the start. You don't see cube trucks go down the highway. Right? You don't see us do Lionel. And you won't see us doing that. And you probably won't see us at your house living at TV because that's just not what we do either. And the parcel stuff. We're sort of in that bog logistics piece. And those things all come hand in hand if you go through them. They do. I mean, one, 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 one business we got out of was the sugar business. So we will get out of businesses too. That makes sense to us. But this is the same question if I may. Um, you, you mentioned that the launch of the, um, the effectively interstate yep, rail product. Um, I'm guessing that's sort of in advance of the, the establishment of the inland rail uh, network as that starts to come through. Um, do you expect there to be a, a degree of land grab between yourself and other rail providers to, to try and you know, gain customer contracts in advance of that inland rail network being developed? Uh, I think that land grab is already going on, so, so I don't think that's it. I mean, the inland rail is one piece of it for us, but we think there's a shift happening anyway, and we think it's a natural progression for our business. We've got the terminals. It's just when we're ready to grow into those markets. The guy that's going to run that market for us has worked for us for 15 years. I'm not looking to go outside the cube sort of brand. Uh, and I'll run through my rail services business and we'll market it in the intermodal piece that Paul spoke about. So that, that launch is a, is a soft launch. That train's only going to run three days a week between Melbourne and Sydney. It's just a, and it'll book build pretty quickly with my customer base and, and then we'll look to, we'll look to grow into that market. And it's, yeah, we're not going to be everything. We're probably not going to go to the, to the west coast at this stage and, and we're probably going to go hang, hang out and down the east coast. You know, it's just a, it's a, it's a stepping stone. We'll see where it takes us. No different to where the agri truck will sweep. But now we're probably competitive at Grandcourt in that New South Wales piece. Morning, John. Jake Carnes from Jarden over here. Um, just two quick ones from me. Firstly, are you seeing a lot of competitiveness in the grain market? Obviously, Horizon making it their business to push harder into the grain market. PN seemingly wanting to mix away from coal. Can you just talk to some of the competitive dynamics over the last maybe two years? I think the Horizon question is good, actually. I mean, I mean, to be honest, Horizon were the underbidder for that. So there's only so many grain terminals in, uh, in New South Wales. So not gonna, they're not pushing into that market. They, there's no other market there in New South Wales to be in. Um, from a grain point of view, I want Horizon to stay in. Uh, stay, in, uh, uh, stay as a competitor because I want them to keep feeding my facilities as I said previously in the, in the slide I don't want to own all the bulk rail business and grain I want to de-risk it a little bit on that part of it and there's enough wagons out there and infrastructure out there to do that PN is sort of servicing Grain Corp so for me no I, I, what was your second, that your second question? The second one will be, uh, you touched on it um, just the modal shift between road and rail yeah. at the start of the year we were hearing from the market that there was a 10x increase in some of those road rates. I think a lot of that was due to bad weather and pushing maybe volumes um, across, maybe from rail onto road. Can you tell us where that settled versus a pre-COVID level and what that looks like, again, from a competitive standpoint? Well, I mean, like, the, there's a shortage of truck, dri- truck drivers, for starters. There's, there's smaller operators, and I won't name the operator, he's just given up. Now on running up and down the highway, it's just getting too hard. The, the rates have gone up substantially. I mean, the big retailers are probably still being able to get reasonable rates, I suppose. I mean, one of my big customers, and I'm pretty sure he won't mind name, is busy. Uh, as I said, between Melbourne and Sydney, uh, they're going to have a terminal in between there, and he, he has a lot of stuff on the road. He wants to get, he really wants to get his rubber off the road. So I think, I think shows the truck drivers, obviously safety, and I think, you know, the decarbonisation of, of what, what rail brings to it, I think in the end it's, 
It's what's going to happen, and we're just getting there probably at the right time, I think. But again, you'll never see us going up down the highway with the truck. Well, there's a couple areas we might have to, but as a whole, that's not the business cubes in. Uh, thanks very much, John. Uh, uh, Scott Bauer from Rainwater Equity Research. I, I was hoping to, uh, to just take you a little bit further there. Um, so your initial service is going to do three days a week. Yep. Uh, what does what 20 locos and 330 wagons get you? Is that start being a, week, uh, a daily service? Um, and I guess to, to what you started to address in your prepared remarks, can you just talk to where you think you have a competitive advantage over some of the other rail companies that are already in between Melbourne and Sydney, please? Uh, well, uh, we've got a competitive advantage. We've got a great customer uh, book, right? And we, we, we see us a bit different to what they're currently doing at the moment. And it's really APN doing the service we're talking about now. I know, I know that I think the, the largest rail operator or the second largest rail operator now, when you get back into that market, they just got out of that market two years ago, so I don't know what that's about, but they're coming back into the market. Uh, I just think we're a bit different. We've got a, a good customer base to grow on. As I said, we're going to do a bit of a book build on it. And I think we have uh, some good terminals, and, and, and the terminals are all open access anyway, so we want them to use our terminals, because as I said before, Q's about throughput, so we're confident that we can build, build a good rail service, uh, 20 locos and 230 wagons. Off the top of my head, we've got 12 locos dedicated at the moment. When we, another eight, we're going to go somewhere else. It just depends on how quick the build goes. But I think that gets me, by memory, five, six days a week one way and five days a week the other way into uh, Brisbane. So, so it gives me an East Coast service. Sorry, so you will extend to Brisbane as well? Yeah, that's the plan. We've just got to sort out terminals and so forth, but that is the plan, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, as I said, we'll, uh, we'll work on the, the, uh, the hybrid model first, but the model is around around getting to that, that question. John, thanks for, thanks for the presentation. It's uh, Matt Ryan from Bar Joey. I just wanted to ask about um, investment. You sort of mentioned this new uh, tram line from Melbourne to Sydney. A little bit earlier, I think Paul had a slide talking about a 10% sort of return hurdle that you guys are trying to get to long term. Can you just talk through the process of, of getting investment and what sort of things that you, I guess, have to prove uh, to get that investment? And then just as a follow-on to that, obviously a very strong balance sheet that Cube's got at the moment. Mm. Can you just talk about the opportunities that are sort of out there and, and sort of how you're feeling about investing more broadly? Yep, for sure. So uh, I think you said Melbourne City Line. It wasn't Melbourne It was a course I was to an IMAX terminal, was it? I remember, I think, I don't know, it was the Melbourne City line as such there, but I'm not sure. I'm sure, yeah, um, by that. But um, the business case that we put up to, the, to, our, uh, to our board is obviously that it's got to, got to get through the hurdles of our board, and there is a business case that's been put up for interstate services, so, so that passed the hurdles, right? So that's, that's answer to question one. Uh, so we're pretty confident about that, and we wouldn't be able to get that sort of investment from our board Unless we pass those hurdles. So, what was the second part of your question, sorry? Yeah. Just how you're sort of feeling about investment more broadly. Obviously, oh, you've got the cash to do so. Yeah. How are you feeling about how many oh, investors are out there? Very positive about any, any sort of containerized investments at all. So, we've just got to find the right ones. Right? I think we're, we're working through a few at the moment. Um, and, uh, and I think some people are doing it tough, some people are doing it really well on the back of COVID. It's just a bit of a mixture. You know, some people have been able to ride the COVID wave and ride the inflation quite well and come out the other end quite well. We were one of those, 
and those organisations and my competitors are as well. So, so where's the opportunities turn up? We'll, we'll, they always come across our desk, right? So we're, we're pretty keen on making investments. And we know we've got a good balance sheet at the moment. So, but we make the right ones, right? Because we're not going to. We're, we're, and one of the reasons in COVID where we didn't make a lot is because we've got it, we, we like to go to the sites and see the businesses and feel, feel the fabric of the business and, and work through the culture of the business to make sure we're comfortable with it as well. So, yeah, well, I think we'll be fairly active. Just go find the right ones. John, I'll ask you one you've had from online. It's Paul, this way. <laughs> uh, sorry, I might just ask a quick one from online to make it a, a look in. The question is, how much visibility do you have on logistics operations relating to containerized volumes? How confident are you of maintaining medium growth if we have a recession? And what happened to volumes transporting warehouse activity last time we had an economic slowdown? Okay, so, I mean, if it's just look where our assets are, I think, I think from a port containerized, strategically, we're quite well placed. So, we'll probably be the last to get hit by a recession in those businesses. I think we're located nice. So, I, I, I have no concern about that. Everyone t- keeps telling me how bad things are slowing down and, We've never seen it better, so I don't, I don't see an issue with that at the moment. I think we're well placed. We've got great cost controls. We can downsize a bit if we have to, but we, I don't know, that is not even in that thought process at all. So, uh, uh, warehousing, well, at the moment we're full, 100% full, and 150,000 square metres coming on board, which isn't really a lot in the scheme of things, and we're pretty pumped, we'll fill that pretty quickly, so it's not going to make or break us really. It didn't only get that bigger, so, I'm not really, again, you know, we we'll watch that carefully. We do a lot of work for uh, Woolworths, so that's a good guide for us. So. And the other point I might add to that is what we found, we don't run an economic downturn, we hope there's no recession. Our track record, given our strong balance sheet and our diversification, is it does create opportunities. So one from a customer perspective, when times are tough, they want to know that the logistics provider is there, will continue to be there and can provide value-added services. And it does create opportunities to make acquisitions either when otherwise wouldn't be there because it's a private individual who just wants to get out because times are tough, or potentially in more favourable terms if there is a full seller. So, well, as John said, if we expect our business will perform really well even if there is a downturn, uh, it may create opportunities to accelerate some of the growth opportunities and emerge stronger. Good morning, Anthony Mulder from Jefferies. What's the talk? Back on the intermodal, can you add intermodal containers to the back of the blue scope, blue scope steel trains initially before starting a, a, a dedicated intermodal service? Uh, yeah, we, we actually we're contracted to do that anyway. That's a part of our part of our business plan anyway. That's going to happen anyway at some stage with with our blue scope at the moment. Well, we're originally we were going to do that. Originally, we just had too much steel, so we we, we agreed to. Agreed to just yeah, concentrate on moving the steel. Um, there's a model to do that. It's a bit more complicated than we thought it was. Uh, and, and, and really, it'll only be small. It'll only be three or 400 metres on the back of each train, so we won't get the scale. But we will still do it. It's part of our grant. We'll do it, so that will still happen anyway. We'll build, build one with them. But as a whole, uh, we think we're starting, in, as I said, we're starting interim service anyway now. Uh, we already run a train between states now. Well, the learnings we've had by running Bluescape between Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne has given us that sort of confidence to go into the next step and run a dedicated service. Can you get into South Diamond, or do you, are you limited to running services out of north? Uh, we run out of north, right, and we're comfortable with running out of north. And at the moment, uh, with North Diamond, uh, we've got inquiries from other rail operators that are running there too. So it is the hot flavour, these terminals, right? I didn't talk about these terminals, but Cube's well placed with all these terminals. Mining rail terminals are across Australia, a lot of people want to use them. 
you, you mentioned Fisherman's Island. Mm-hmm. Is there a plan to take rail into Fisherman's Island by the state government? Rail goes into Fisherman's Island. It goes in today. There's rail in there. Yeah. And so it connects to Acacia Ridge. Yeah, we can do that. We can run from we can run from Sydney to Fisherman's Island. Okay. Uh, into Grain. Grain Corp obviously do trading. It's heard that you aren't doing trading currently. Mm-hmm. Is there a plan to to move into grain trading as part of the Cube offer? Not at the moment because we work with a lot of a lot of good traders now, a lot of good Australian traders. It sort of opened up the market for for our, our people outside the our multinationals like the cargoers and that. We've got some really good customers that we're working with that are Australian traders. As long as they continue to you, we, you know, collectively we use the our infrastructure's full and we don't see a need to buy grain to fill infrastructure out. And, and as long as people are sharing the fruits of it, they're getting a good, they're making a good return out at the moment, so we're getting some share out of that. So, but we can trade. I mean, if we could, if we want to trade, we could. So, but at, for this season, we don't really have plan. We might do some containers, but as a DCT trade, but that's it. Okay. And, and last question: We see a lot of the shipping lines pushing more into logistics. Obviously, your bread and butter has been that import-export trade. Yep. Where do you see your market share gains coming from in import-export? Uh, look, I, I mean, they're pushing into our market, but not in a big way in Australia. I mean, Medlog's a little bit, but, but I, don't, I, don't, I don't see them really impacting us too much. Um, I mean, there's, there's probably not the locations they, they strive to be in. If they want to be in it, they've got to sort of go out a bit. So it won't make a lot of sense. They're better off being with our services. So, I mean, I can't control what they do. They've made a lot of money, those guys, over the years, but um, the freight rates come down a bit, so maybe not. Uh, thanks, Evan. I'm mindful of timing, so we're going to move on to the next session now. I'm happy to do cute more, more questions during the breaks or after the meeting uh, if there are any further questions. Okay. Back up. Yeah. So that will now give an intro into the Ports and Bulk uh, business unit. Thanks, John. <coughs> um, I'll just do a short intro to the Ports and Bulk business. Um, um, and before I hand over to, to Todd and, uh, and Michael to go through the, through the business unit itself, um, I'd just like to explain just the integrated structure of the Ports and Bolt. Um, Michael Souza is the Director of Ports and his commercial team sits over the general, general storytelling business, the um, automotive, automotive business, the energy, oil and gas business, the forestry business and, and our government services business. And Todd Evans is the Director of Bulk and Todd sits, and his commercial team sits over the bulk of mining business and the renewables business. So by design, we only have... I'll just um, get this going again. We only have one cube operation in the ports and bulk space per port. Um, so you'll see on the, I'll see on the side there there's... There's blue dots and there's brown dots. Um, so depending on what's the most dominant activity, if it's a more of a bulk port, or it's more of a general steel mining or a forestry or an automotive port, then either Todd's team, operational team, or Michael's team will do all the activities in that in that port. So there's a there's a very much of a mix between the commercial teams of of sharing a customer book within each of those ports. So. Um, that allows us not to not to double up on people, equipment, management systems, 
So it's basically around the, the one cube integration of work. So just to explain that before I hand over to, hand over to the team, I just want to explain that both Michael and, Paul, Michael and Todd have less responsibilities over the commercial aspects of it, but they share a lot of facilities. They share their operational teams do the work for each other, and that's why it's a very integrated. It's, it's very difficult to separate these into two divisions. I probably won't go through all, the, all these all these slides here now because the guys will guys will take you through you know the size of the business by their locations. So I will I will hand over to to Michael first um, to talk about the ports business and the portfolio, the commercial portfolio of the ports business. Michael. Good morning and welcome to you all. Uh, I'm Michael Susser, Director of the Ports Business Unit. I've been with Cube since 2007 and I came across with the original acquisition from P&O, making it now some 25 years in supply chain management. In the port session today, I want to take you through the port's portfolio. Its drivers, its challenges and its opportunities. What I want to demonstrate to you is how our 70 port operations drive our supply chain growth. How those opportunities, through delivering efficiencies to our customers, across approximately 50 products within this business unit, and I want to take into a deeper dive of our supply chain construct and leave you with an understanding of one, our ability to transform and expand supply chains which delivers a vast range of business growth opportunities. Two, how our focus on innovation, technology, training and people assist us, assist us to offer efficiencies to our customers and create new opportunities for Cube. And finally, our ability to sweat assets across business units improves our returns. I want to start on this slide, uh, which you've seen parts of through the first bit of the first couple of presentations. Uh, this is our I guess our customer service slide. The green boxes in the middle identify the service areas, which I will actually do a deeper dive through this presentation to demonstrate how we create value and growth for our business. However, to give you an understanding of the diversity of the port's business unit on this slide, I will cover a few examples of how we package our services. I'll start with fertiliser, which we do approximately 2.5 million tonne a year. We stevedore the product, we transport the product, we warehouse it in off-port facilities and we use our cargo management systems to manage that product. On the other hand, for motor vehicles, again we conduct stevedoring, we transport the product, 
restore it. We pre-deliver services and transport to dealer. Handling every motor vehicle brand you see on the Australian streets. A component of this service, which has a premium, is quality control, so as not to damage or scratch the car that you end up buying at a dealer. For large projects like pipelines, again taking the same slide, it's not uncommon for us to charter a vessel, to stevedore the vessel, to manage the storage and transport the cargo to the end user. Then something completely different on the other hand in our governments, under our government services trial there, we handle government services and provide support for the Australian, Singaporean and United States Navy vessels right across the world. And we do that on a daily basis. I'd actually love to spend the next six hours talking to you about each and every single one of those 50 commodities and go through how the, each of the supply chains. But I'll focus today on the growth supply chains that we've developed from the start to demonstrate to you in this next half hour how through those assets and cube network we create value and continuous supply chain growth opportunities. Before I do that, I want to, to touch on an important factor which sits behind why do customers choose Q for their supply chains. When I look at our commodity and product supply chain diversity, this slide picks up all the key factors that are important to our customers and our partners. I want to specifically hone in on what differentiates Cube. If I start with strategic assets, our ability to link assets right across our business between divisions, between business units, um, John's, Todd's, my own, which allows us to offer any supply chain, a unique supply chain, linking our various asset options. Our safety systems. Across the supply chain, our safety standards are non-negotiable and our customers expect a safe service and know with Q they are in safe hands. Our people strive for zero harm, which protects our customers' people, our customer, their business and their brand. Our people. Our people are the difference in an efficient supply chain. Whilst you're hearing every day that companies are losing people, I am proud to say right here that our people don't want to leave Cube. They live and breathe Cube. They are, in fact, the engine that makes our strategies, plans, systems and service levels work. Innovation. Efficiencies and savings in supply chains come from innovation. Challenging the norm and driving improvement is key to our unique service offering. And I'll run you through this presentation. I'll give you some, some of those examples throughout this business unit. 
supply chain management systems. Last but not least, our secret ingredient. I know there's a lot of you watching online, but please don't write this down. Our systems. Believe it or not, no competitor, no competitor at all, can offer complete supply chain visibility like we do. We can offer our clients complete visibility on where their cargo is at any point from the moment it hits Australian shores right through to their final destination. Going through to our first case study, Cube Energy. I'd like to, I'd like to take you through the journey of Cube Energy. Cube Energy operates across 16 locations supporting the energy sector. In 2010, we acquired CFS in Melbourne, and in 2012, we saw an opportunity to expand CFS, today known as Cube Energy, into what we identified as a growth market, which today services the energy market across Australia, PNG, Singapore and Indonesia. I'll give you a demonstration now of what that cube energy supply chain looks like and I'll give you some more information behind that. established itself as Australia's leading supplier of supply chain logistics services for the oil and gas sector. The service offering has grown from one acquisition in Melbourne in 2012 to 15 sites across Australia. Cube Energy supports 33 offshore drilling campaigns and more than 3,000 onshore drilling wells for leading oil and gas companies, including Shell, Chevron and Exxon. Cube Energy handles all aspects of logistics servicing including managing collection of materials from vendors, transportation of materials, whether by road, rail or air freight, and the operation of supply bases to support oil and gas operations. Cube presently operates 13 oil and gas supply bases across Australia that manage materials. These supply bases are located from Darwin in the Northern Territory to regional Victoria, Perth to the northwest of Western Australia to across regional Queensland. These supply bases service offshore rigs and supply vessels, as well as onshore rig and infield transport services. Cube Energy ensures that the materials that are needed by the operations are available and delivered in an efficient and timely manner as required. Supply base services also incorporate quality and quarantine inspections, warehousing and preservation, fuel and bulk liquid supply, repairs and container hire. So the standard supply chain, it um, enters the Chevron supply chain in Perth, enters the Perth supply base, Western Australia. Goods are receded, put away, picked, processed, loaded onto line haul and then sent north to land in the northwest supply base here in Karatha. This is where we receive, put away, processed the material, picked, packed and prepped for shipping to the offshore installations. 
Northwest supply base is a critical element in Chevron Australia business unit supply chain management. Receiving materials to issue to the Wheatstone platform and Barrow Island. Cube Energy leverages the comprehensive services offered across the Cube portfolio to provide additional complementary logistics and supply chain services with the capability and capacity to extend these services for existing customers and manage new customers' requirements. Opportunity exists to further extend these capabilities into the emerging offshore renewable market. Cube is well placed to service our customers' needs as the energy transition gathers momentum. started largely as a retailer operation in 2012. Our service offering today supports production and maintenance to over 3,000 onshore wells and key offshore gas fields in Australia. In addition, Cube also supports drilling activities in both onshore and offshore gas operations. We provide services, as you saw on that slide, that range from freight management supply base operations, parts preservation, water management, air freight management, fuel supply, spooling, fabrication, weak stacking, quality and quarantine inspections. Together, these services touch $484 million worth of freight, 70, 37 million litres of bulk liquid supplies across 1.8 million kilometres throughout Australia, utilising 1.1 million working hours. Today, Cube Energy partners with key customers such as Shell, Chevron, ExxonMobil and Santos. It's testament to our ability to identify a market we can enter as well as identify how our range of assets and services can improve the energy market supply chain. And on top of that, we embedded the Q supply chain model, which not only added value for our customers, but created a growth market for Cube, which has increasing range, an increasing range of opportunities. With the key breadth of assets and facilities and innovation, we have built a complex energy expectation. All the energy supplies now come to us. We are embedded and we provide a critical service to this supply chain, putting us in a strong position in this sector. I want to share some examples with you now of how we have transformed the energy market supply chain you have just seen, and how it embeds cube service for the long term. Our customers have an ability to utilise shared facilities all under the cube banner. This has never, ever been done in this sector. We were the first to do it. For the first time ever, this sector was, has complete visibility of their supply chain through the Cube Connect system which literally connects their supply chain pieces together 
to drive improvements, efficiencies and savings. We have built the longest pipe spooling facility in the world in Indonesia, which has handled 22 kilometres of underwater gas pipeline with the largest diameter of 18-inch pipe ever spooled in the world. Excitingly, we have new projects scheduled for the construction of an additional 87 kilometres of underwater gas pipeline spooling coming up. As you can see, Cube is the key supplier in what is a crucial global energy sector. Looking at, a, again, a, new, a different supply chain, having touched on the Cube Energy one, again, we started from scratch, we built that up. Looking at another key supply chain which we built. Cube Forestry Supply Chain now handles in excess of 20 million tonne per annum of plantation timber across Australia and New Zealand in export logs, export wood chip and timber into the domestic market. Again, similar to the energy supply chain, we foresaw a future critical supply chain and acquired ISO in 2016. We come into a block that hasn't been touched, cut a chipper landing out. So this is our biggest chipping machine. It's a split system Peterson, so um, using a fellow buncher. The fellow buncher goes along, chops the trees down, puts them in a bundle, and then a skitter, wheeled skitter comes along, picks it up, takes it up to the chipper. Then it's put through the machine and it's flailed first, which takes all the bark and limbs off. Um, then it goes through to the chipper, which it's put into chip, straight into the truck. From here it's taken to Portland and tipped off, ready to go on a ship to go overseas. They come to a terminal here at the port. And then when a vessel's here, uh, they're pushed into a conveyor system or the chip pile is pushed into a conveyor system. And our guys are up on board the vessel at the moment. We're loading two hatches at about 800 tonne an hour, so 400 tonne an hour per hatch. Uh, and this particular vessel will take about 50,000 tonne of wood chips. Cube-owned ISO Limited is the market leader in forestry logistics in New Zealand. Founded in 1995 on the North Island as a stevedoring operation, the ISO offering has grown since the Cube acquisition in 2016, expanding services within the forestry supply chain and extending geographical reach into the South Island. Driven by Cube Investment, ISO has revolutionised the handling of logistics for forestry products, developing and introducing the world's first robotic scanning equipment for timber scaling. Cube has equipped ISO with the world's largest timber grabs and state-of-the-art mobile harbour cranes. 
These technology and equipment-driven solutions provide increased capability, improved productivity and a safer operating environment. Today, ISO is New Zealand's largest supplier of export handling services, managing 14 million tonnes of export cargo each year from 15 strategic port locations, including servicing 600 log vessels per annum, handling 27 million logs each year. With the support of CUBE, ISO is committed to providing market-leading technology-driven solutions for forestry export logistics. It's important to note on that that our services, as you can see, are in plantation forests. In this example, again, what I want to show you is that we started through an acquisition in 2016 in New Zealand, having identified an opportunity in the market. That business was providing stevedoring across six ports, and today, after Cube acquired it, Cube operates across 12 ports, 33 log marshalling operations, 9 wood chip operations, and 12 domestic harvesting operations. This growth has come from combining the cube breadth of assets, facilities, systems, innovation, and experience. As a result, we are now a key service provider across this entire forestry supply chain. Not only have we managed to grow our footprint and market share, Cube have in fact led the way to improve safety and productivity through our ability to innovate and introduce technology. Since entering the forestry market, Cube have transformed this market through the delivery of the world first truck robotic lock counting machines, which can scan a truck, a, a truck of logs and count and measure them to complete accuracy. The first log export mobile harbour crane grabs in the world. Automated ship log loading scanners and live log tracking system and statistics. In both examples today, you can see, and we've tried to demonstrate, our ability to identify and enter a supply chain, adopt our range of services, and transform the supply chain with innovation and technology using our unique systems. We specifically identified these examples because these were commodities that we weren't in other than stevedoring, when we go back to that original supply chain, and we've been able to come and take the suite of services that Paul touched on earlier in his slides, and we've been able to adopt all the, all the, all the CUBE systems, all our technology, our experience, our ability to tap into each other's assets, and on the back of that, we've built now what is two key supply chains for CUBE, energy and forestry. And both of those today will dominate uh, in both of those aspects. Finally, taking a look at the outlook across our commodity and product mix growth in the ports business unit. This will come in the form of growth in volume 
expanded services, increased market share, new services, new supply chains, and in-contract rate improvements. On the export side, generally there is a healthy pipeline growth across the commodities. With strong demand, client growth and rate improvements. On the import section, we are seeing medium growth with consistent volume, pointing out specifically motor vehicles and machinery due to our services across the supply chain. Motor vehicle volume, the motor vehicle volume backlog will ensure solid volume in this sector. Fertilizer import volumes are expected to be strong and our services <coughs> across the transport, storage and stevedoring will benefit from this. On the energy space, across this sector of our business, we are seeing high growth across all facets of services and expected growth into new areas like rig decommissioning, continued pipe spooling, fabrication and decarbonisation at our BOMC facility. From the case study showed before, we have embedded ourselves to capture this growth. We have largely, largely displaced our competitors and created ongoing growth in various parts of this sector, like supply-based like supply operations, logistics, freight management, fuel supply, spooling, which I've touched on, fabrication, rig stacking and decommissioning. Finally, in forestry, we see high domestic growth through increased supply chain operations. Wood chip export volumes are also quite healthy and the opportunity for additional wood chip operations is high. We see medium growth in the export space, noting China is a key market, but our customers are increasingly moving volume to alternate markets like India. However, I point out that the key growth driver in the export forestry space will come from the fact that we have negotiated with all the forestry exporters a significant tariff increase. Finally, and key to our growth, the other key factors that allow our supply chain services to grow is our ability, one, to flex our labour resources up or down due to our unique conditions in our employee agreements, where we can move people across sites and change labour force composition to manage peaks and troughs without penalty. Two, our ability to shift assets across the various supply chains to ramp up expanding supply chains and scale down assets for supply chains that may have lower volumes. Finally, we have varied rates to allow for cost changes or where volume drop-offs have occurred to cover higher fixed costs. So today in this segment, I hope having taken you behind the scenes of two key supply chains in the port business unit 
demonstrates the scope and breadth of our supply chains, our product diversity, the key factors that drive our business, as well as the significant growth opportunities that lie ahead for this business unit. I haven't touched on acquisition and capex much in this section, but what I can say is that we have a pipeline of acquisitions we are evaluating across the different service options that I touched on earlier in this business unit, particularly energy, but they will only occur if they meet the cube investment criteria. And generally other capital expenditure will come on the back of new contracts and new service offerings. Thank you for, t for your time today, and at this point I'll take any questions. As before, if anyone's got any question, raise your hand or Michael will report to you. G'day, uh, Andre Fromia from UBS. Um, it, it strikes me that the Cube Ports business has a lot of stuff happening on the land side. Um, you've called out growth in wind farms and, and containers. Uh, similarly, the logistics business has things that probably overlap, um, you know, like terminals and, and you know, wind farm activities as well. Um, are the lines sometimes a bit blurry about what, you know, once you go to customers, who you should be responsible for what, or, you know, what are the, what criteria do you apply for, um, you know, how you house these operations and, and how you sort of um, uh, come to market with the offering? Yep. Uh, it's not uncommon when we, if we tender for a supply chain, it'll incorporate all three parts of the business, uh, and a lot of it will come down to what assets sit within each business unit, um, the expertise, but for a good example is uh, fertiliser, we do fertiliser right across the country, um, some of it will come through the ports that I sit with, some will come through Tobes, but typically wherever the larger volume is, um, that business unit will head up that tender, uh, and, and that's why, as Paul touched on, it's difficult to break up um, this division because there is a lot of that. But for customers, look, customers, there's no confusion per se for them. Most of our customers uh, have been with us, um, if I look at the, the, the car business, they've been with us for probably 20 years on average. A lot of our bulk customers, um, 10, 10 to 15 years, so they know the market. Uh, and even if we take these two, um, these two opportunities, they were new opportunities, they fell within this business service, so it was easy for that customer to understand. But I think the key point to touch on here is I started at the first part of it with port. Often you'll see that a new supply chain creates, um, starts from the port. We see a, a product that we're not touching. We see that as an opportunity and we build that. That's where the energy piece started. That's where forestry started. Uh, and that's what this was trying to demonstrate. So we started with stevedoring and we now handle the whole supply chain. And the only thing I'd add to that is, well, particularly with Paul, but also most before that, we're focused very much on the one cube. So we have regular monthly management meetings, particularly focusing on investment committee. So if there's any capital involved, there's a robust discussion with the business unit managers, Paul Digney, Mark, myself, Shane and others. And so through that, there's a logical conclusion around, should we do something? And then how do we do it? And there's obviously a lot of informal engagement as well. 
Hi, it's uh, Paul Butler here from Credit Suisse. Um, thank you for the, the presentation. One, one thing I found really interesting was your statement about Cube having the ability to identify into supply chains and, and to transform those um, with innovation and technology. And so you, you've talked a lot about this getting into to forestry logistics, but I'm just wondering if you could sort of quantify um, what what the additional growth and value you've been able to um, achieve um, when you've gone into forestry. So you're saying you know, the first starting point was doing the stevedoring. How much additional growth have you seen by integrating that service compared to you know, where you started with the stevedoring? And, and are you capturing more of the value in the supply chain because you've offered the, the integrated service. Yep, that's, that's a great question. I'll probably start with John's analogy. John mentioned that um, every time he touches a container, there's revenue. And that's no different to us. If you look at the forestry, we started with stevedoring. And again, we, we start with stevedoring because we see the commodity. We touch it, we see it. We look at whether there's value. We look, we look at whether our, our, um, our table of services and assets fits that commodity. If we look at forestry, we started with stevedoring. We now do marshalling. We now do debarking. We cart the logs. Um, we harvest it. Uh, we chip it. Uh, so we now, we now touch a log whichever way it goes. We touch it to go to export market. We touch the forestry piece, the log that goes into chip to make uh, recycled paper, etc., etc. All we touch now, log, and in the more recent times, in the domestic market, we saw that as an opportunity. We had assets that were um, through COVID not being utilised to full capacity. We were able to move those assets and start touching the logs that are going into the domestic market that are making fence posts or items like that, but you're seeing at Bunnings. So. Um, those opportunities continue to occur because we've got the assets, we've got the systems, uh, and we've got that vast range of services that you see in those trials. So the more you can touch it, as John said, the more revenue opportunities there are. G'day, Michael. Jake Kikarnas from Jardin. Um, just a question on how you're seeing motor vehicles at the moment, especially through the first quarter. Are you seeing some of that catch-up of the back backlog that you mentioned occurring at this stage? And can you give us a relativity kind of last two years, obviously, complications through the entire supply chain? Can you give us a, a sense of where we're at now and how we're transitioning through that backlog? Uh, yeah, look, there is a backlog, and I thought I mentioned in um, my, um, my presentation, the backlog now sits at around three, 18 months to three years. Now, that's good for us. Um, what I can say is the best thing about um, complexity in the supply chain is every time the more complex it is, um, the more money we're making. There's certainly a shortage of tonnage and ships, so there's, it's a combination of all of that. I'm Anthony Martin from Jefferies again. The question about contracts. So one of the things in the past has been the, the earlier than expected end of contracts. Can you talk to the contract profile that you have? And I appreciate that's a diverse list of contracts, but 
how those contracts have trended as far as the extension of contracts and your ability to, to re-sign contracts as they've come up? This is a good time for contracts to go to tender um, because they're not going to tender. Uh, what we're finding right across, I think we've got the common, a common um, position, customers are not generally putting contracts to tender. They want to renew contracts because uh, they're concerned about um, moving support, shifting from suppliers, uh, losing access to the sort of flexibilities that we have in labour, where we can move labour uh, anywhere across the country. So if we have a shortage of labour because we've got a peak in um, Dampier and Dublin WA, we can move people from Port Canberra, uh, from Brisbane, anywhere. So we have the flexibility to do that, and customers know that. Uh, we have the, they don't want to risk, especially in an environment where you've got high cost, um, move um, and make the wrong decision and just incur high cost in your supply chain. Uh, yeah, look, our average contract news average is somewhere between five and ten years. So to take the Chevron contract, we're saying that probably now six months ago, and um, well, that's a ten-year contract. Hey there, Charlie Donald from Macquarie. Um, you've called out forestry volumes being depressed recently and with particular weakness coming from China. Uh, how do you see that environment changing and how important is China um, overall for, the, for this business? Yep. Thanks, Charlie. That's a great question. Uh, look, last year, we, there's no doubt, I mean, everyone, everyone you're all reading it, it's in the papers, certainly um, the Chinese market was down. It was down... Uh, because of COVID closures in China, that was impacting their manufacturing plants, etc. Um, obviously, you've read there's been a, a decline in their real estate market. You've read all of those things. Um, we, our, our numbers were certainly slightly impacted by that, obviously, because we've got a high investment in capital uh, in, in that part, and obviously that lower, lower volume impacted that. Uh, this year, if I'm looking at um, this year, I would say to uh, our focus has been on cost management, realigning the business to what would be now the norm, I guess, from, from a forestry perspective. Uh, we've pulled our cost. As I said before, we've, incre we've increased rates, um, I can only say substantially, from the 1st of October. So you, you haven't seen that in our first quarter numbers, but certainly that'll start to kick, to kick in from, from here. Um, and I would say to you, the market, from now from where we're seeing, the market certainly stabilised. Volumes certainly seem stable. The volumes coming across the ports from a forestry perspective are there. Um, I'd add, don't forget China, the China real estate market, and that market is an 8 trillion RMB market. So it's a big market. So uh, the demand will always exist and there will always be a requirement for New Zealand timbers. You add on to that a couple of things. The European and Uruguayan market uh, forestry, they, they, did, they historically have provided legs into China. That market's coming off. That's providing a hole in the market. Uh, we're seeing China use more softwood logs, which is the New Zealand logs 
for things they haven't used, such as furniture. They've typically used other form of logs, but we're starting to see we're starting to see them use more of those logs into some of some of those different areas. So that is only good for the New Zealand logs. So uh, we also see the exporters looking at different markets, and India is one of those. Uh, uh, and well, and then throw into that. We've moved into that domestic space here in Australia for forestry, which is probably worth around 2 million tonne per annum for us. So, uh, look, it's certainly, uh, I'm sure if I'm going to say this. Yeah, don't? Well, no, if I give my opinion, I can only say forestry should be better uh, this year than it was last year. Uh, Scott Ryan from Rhino again. Michael, thanks very much. I, I was wanting to follow up on a couple of comments you've made. Um, and uh, I guess one of the, the laggards in the CUBE result in, in fiscal 22 was the overall ports and bulk division where um, uh, price and delays of, of price increases and productivity were cited as two of the key issues. Um, and given we were just talking about, uh, about some of those things, I was wondering if you could comment, I guess, firstly on uh, is it the productivity and the recontracting environment that gives you the confidence that the, uh, the pricing will, as a result, come through and reverse some of those impacts in the years coming forward? And secondly, if productivity and the ability, you know, I guess, to, uh, to work flexibly with your employees is a competitive advantage at the moment. Um, if all reports are true, we've got some pretty interesting industrial relations uh, legislation coming in today as we speak. Now, I don't know whether it will come in or not. Um, but does that put that competitive advantage at risk in your mind? Maybe it's a question for Paul later on as a, as a whole of cube thing, because you guys have had some pretty good uh, barneys with unions over the, uh, the course of the last 15 to 20 years. Um, but I was wondering if you could uh, could just talk to the broader industrial relations landscape as part of that competitive advantage, please. Sure. Thanks for the question, Scott. Uh, uh, two parts, obviously, there was rates and I think sort of rates and margin conversion. I got in that. Um, I would say to you in terms of rates and margin conversion, uh, again, within this business unit, you've got parts like the energy piece, which is um, very profitable, high ROCE, but lower margins. So we touch high volume, uh, which means you've got bits and pieces like uh, things like uh, we sell fuel to the oil and gas companies uh, and we put a small margin on that. That will throw out some of those margins. Um, and then you've got, for example, the forestry piece, which is high margin. Uh, so you've got that skew that skewness, I guess, of, from a margin perspective. Uh, in terms of rates, what we see is where we're going to customers from out of cycle, out of contract cycle. So within a contract asking for rate increases, they are coming to the party. So we are getting, we're, we're recovering uh, fuel increases, we're recovering uh, costs where we need to increase. And, and I'm, I said to you on the forestry piece, we've had a significant increase in those rates across every single exporter 
Um, so that will improve that. In terms of um, productivity and IR, um, I, I would say to you the difference in that space is our experience. Uh, we've been doing this for 20, 25 years, whatever it is. Uh, we don't mind a bone, by the way. Um, but uh, what we do know how to do is manage uh, the expectations of both the unions and employees. The difference with us is we know how to engage with our employees. If I look at the stevedoring sector, which everybody talks about um, uh, as being highly industrial, um, the beauty of our business is it's probably only 30% of our employees are members of the union. So we don't see as, as what you see gets hyped up from a, a general stevedoring perspective, but we don't generally see that in, in this business unit. Um, so our ability to manage IR is a big factor. In terms of productivity, uh, our managers have been with us for 20 years, our port managers. We have a port manager at every site. They've all come up from the ground. They've been, they've been either a fork driver, a crane driver. They've been a shift manager. They know how to drive productivity. So generally, uh, we're seeing productivity improve, not, not go backwards. And I think people are very conscious um, of performing. Uh, certainly our investment in technology, a lot of what we're doing around automation and robotics, which you saw a bit of in the forestry space, that also drives a lot of that um, improvement in productivity. Um, I'm running out of time, and maybe Paul, you can talk to industrial uh, in the later panel session. Just one question from online, and if you can give a quick response. Uh, structurally, is a less integrated global supply chain, e.g. more onshoring of manufacturing, an Italian headwind or mission? To the business. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's neutral. And again, using the forestry example, um, because of our supply chain, because of its diversity, because of our assets, our facilities, our equipment, um, we're able to shift our service accordingly. And again, using the forestry piece, we actually saw an opportunity with COVID. There was no production in Australia of forestry products. And that actually created a new market for us to operate in. So we've benefited um, from that space. So I, I don't think um, that that would change that much. Great, thank you. Um, we'll have a 15-minute break now. Uh, for those online participants, if you can return at uh, 12.05, we'll continue with Todd looking after Q-Bulk. And if everyone can try and return here functionally, that would be great. There is coffee and refreshments outside. Thank you.
we are in a really uniquely positioned to offer all of those services in our own right uh, and under the one roof. And I should say clients often choose us for a suite of services uh, and that tends to remove friction points. Uh, and I think one of the questions was about value there. When you remove friction points across the supply chain, it does release significant value that both our clients and us are able to share in. And conversely, to a, a suite of services or, a, or an integrated package, some clients might only choose one or two elements that are up there. And when they do that for the cube bulk division, that, that provides us with a very strong opportunity to, over time to deliver additional services to those clients. So to build out our revenues, to build out our margins. Um, I think Paul put up a slide that introduced cube ports and bulk 135 million tonnes, but other that, I think cube bulk are touching around 115 million tonnes per annum. And just to give you a feel for the split between those that choose a fully integrated package versus a, versus a one element package, about 55% of the volume is a fully, fully integrated package. And that implies that there's 45% of the volume that we're currently handling where we have opportunities right in front of us with existing clients to offer additional services and build out our revenues. And today I'm going to talk through a couple of exciting mineral supply chains. Before I do that, let's touch on, on this slide here, which is really about our one cube approach. And I think uh, Paul Lewis might have called out the one cube approach. And these really are a common set of features and values that set us apart in our industry. And for the cube bulk division, when I'm out there marketing to our clients, I'll just call out a couple that make a real difference in the market today. And they are our environmental focus, our financial capability, and our position within the community and the people that we've got. In terms of the environmental focus, um, our copper, lithium and nickel clients have a really mature approach to the energy transition that's underway. We've seen that. We've seen the IGOs of the world, the BHP, Nickel West, and what they've been doing. And we're in a constant conversation with them around our plans and our roadmaps for change. Uh, and we see that, that those roadmaps enable us to strengthen our partnerships with these key clients as we, as we work hard to deliver lower carbon footprint across their supply chains. But more importantly, we also appreciate that the energy transition will increase the demand, the overall demand for those commodities that you'll find we're well entrenched in today. So the demand for copper, nickel, lithium and rare earths. And it will also open up new markets for us. So I think Paul presented a wind farm project. So the renewables energy, the wind farm logistics sits in the bulk provision. And we think there's going to be significant uh, opportunity in the wind and solar markets and that will become a larger part of the cube bulk business. And again, we're uniquely positioned uh, across that wind farm market to continue to grow. Um, so we, we really believe, we firmly believe that uh, that key feature up there around environment focus um, provides us with an aligned value with our clients, and it is really valued um, as we're delivering that. Clients are prepared to pay for lower carbon Lower, lower, lower environmental impact supply chains. In terms of financial capability, there is a continued demand from the clients that I service, which are typically mid-tier, mid-tier miners, to select a supply chain partner who can actually invest in their supply chains. Uh, and our balance sheet certainly allows us to be selective in building 
for current and future clients uh, key parts of their logistic infrastructure. You know, that could typically be a bulk storage facility. Uh, we've done this very successfully over the years. Right at the start, I think Paul mentioned Utah Point. We built the stockyard at Utah Point, uh, designed that for 6.5 million tonnes. I think, you know, whatever you were looking at, it's upwards of 20 million tonnes per annum. And it really does go to the DNA piece again about driving volume through a fixed piece of infrastructure and driving it harder than that anyone would ever thought possible. And we've also in recent times built a significant footprint of lithium storage, or spodumene I should say, storage facilities in Esperance, in Bumble and in the Pilbara. And even recently we built a, a hall road for BHP so they could get early, an early start at the Yakabindi nickel mine up at Mount Keith. And being able to make these investments allows us to work closely with our clients through startup and develop strong relationships that typically endure as our clients grow and prosper. And lastly, I'll call out the community or our people uh, on this slide, and, and that's really important given we've just finished two years of, of COVID. Um, a big part of our business is Western Australian based, uh, and the borders only really were dropped in, uh, I think, May this year or then March this year. So, um, so. Our 2,200 uh, 2, direct employees, they typically live in remote and regional areas. Uh, the Q-Bulk business preferences local employment over FIFO, and as I mentioned, that stood us in really good stead over the COVID years. Um, it should be noted that just prior to COVID, we had 95% of our workforce who was working in WA actually living in WA, um, where others were relying significantly on FIFO and then the borders were closed that, that prevented them from, from further growth and actually impacted their operations. And over that period we were able to actually grow and mobilise new jobs and we saw our business grow over those last few years despite the fact that there was uh, COVID impacts in Western Australia. So in addition to environment, finance and community, I think I'll just touch on another couple of points there. Safety, Kidbulk has a world-leading Flint Monitoring Centre, and that's really valued by our clients when they're selecting a partner. They want to know that whatever you're doing on road is done safely. Our equipment fleet, we've got a well-invested equipment fleet, typically tier, tier 4 and 5 prime movers. We're a very early adopter of uh, hydrostatic and hybrid bulk materials handling front and loaders, um, and we've got a good capacity there to continue to uh, push more volume through our equipment base that's currently employed. But our innovation approach, um, when you look at Cubebolt closely, you won't see, see a single supply chain that's not offering some form of innovation. So we don't just do standard road haulage, we don't just do standard operations. What you'll see is performance-based standards in all of our road haulage equipment. Uh, you'll see uh, high-density stacking warehouses. So we have 25 hectares of warehouses are probably equivalent to three times that of other people's warehouses because of the way we've designed them. Um, and you'll see us using things like the rotor box at the shiploading end to get our customers early access to market, and that's a proprietary piece of equipment that Cube designed in the early days. Okay, so um, hopefully I've given you a bit of a flavour of the business, which is diversified across commodity, client and region, is well invested in infrastructure and, and mobile equipment, it provides, typically provides integrated services under one roof with safety, ESG, local content being hallmarks. Um, I'll now turn to a couple of case studies I think to give you a real flavour 
of what we do and I'd like to talk about our lithium story or our, our spodumene story and how we've worked very hard to establish services in this emerging market. Um, this, this story here encompasses all ports across Western Australia from Esperance to Bunbury where we handle Talison and we have for a long time to Perth where we're now working with Albemarle and Tianke as they ramp up their lithium hydroxide plants and up to Headland where we do all pebble minerals and, and, and have been involved in the Wadjina restart recently. And hope, not hopefully, it's been announced we will be starting up in Darwin in the new year for core lithium as they bring that uh, volume to market. So we've invested very heavily in the lithium supply chains across Australia, building out storage facilities in Esperance, Bunbury and Headland, also designing high capacity triple road trains where quad road trains can't be used and in some locations where bulk shiploaders lo loading is not available because there's not a bulk shiploader, um, we've deployed the Rotobox technology and that's allowed our clients to get early access to market in a market where they wouldn't be because the investment given the volumes in providing a shiploader is not there. It's fair to say that today we're working across all the hard rock lithium supply chains in Australia. That didn't come about by chance. We made clear strategic decisions on this around seven years ago and have been working with all the lithium hard rock miners through their PFSs, BFSs and into production. And although you know, there was a little bit of a false start there a couple of years ago, we did, we did hit a couple of snags. It'd be fair to say that there's a very strong outlook in this market segment going forward for cube bulk. And I'll just play a little video. Do I do that? No, you do that. Australia is the world's largest producer of the globally in-demand resource, lithium. Q provides strategic transport using bulk handling systems to manage logistics from mine to market. At the mine, cube trucks are loaded with lithium to be transported to the grading warehouses at Port Hedland. Pioneers in improving transport logistics and supply chain solutions, Cube is leading the way in lithium transport and export. The proprietary Cube Rotorbox is an innovative, purpose-built bulk handling and transport solution, revolutionising the export of mineral concentrates. The unique rotating frame eliminates dust and product spillage, meeting Australia's stringent environmental and safety standards, and reduces clean-up costs. The rotor box can also be used for vessel loading at any port, providing increased flexibility for cube operations. Dramatically increasing productivity and profitability for Cube clients, Rotorbox is the most effective bulk handling system in the industry.
and to round out, I'll just move one slide forward, and to round out the whole battery mineral story, uh, which, is, which isn't for Q-Bulk, just focused on lithium, I've actually got another a short uh, video here, which I'll just introduce before we play, that does show an integrated supply chain that we've been developing in the gold fields over the last 24 months. Uh, the investment in rail terminals uh, and equipment remains consistent with our focus on the nickel, lithium, copper and rare earths industries markets. Uh, over the last 24 months, we've deployed over 200 people into the gold fields. That's 200 additional people whilst uh, COVID hard border closures are, are in place. We've built three rail terminals in Kalgoorlie, Leonora and Quinana. Some of those rail terminals were built within three months of lead time uh, over that period, which just shows you the agility which, which, and the speed which we, which we can move when needed to. Uh, we've deployed a significant locomotive fleet and have procured um, a good range of lightweight rail wagons that are, are market leading in, in the West and also have designed and delivered special purpose dry bulk uh, container fleet. So it just looks like standard containers there, but I can show you there's a whole range of things uh, and innovation in both of those containers that allow us to maximise payloads and, and, and minimise costs for our clients. Uh, today we've established a really strong offering across the gold fields and remain confident in securing additional volume there uh, with, across the, the, the network of terminals and equipment that we've already uh, put in place uh, and we think that will drive future growth and margins in our business across what is a largely fixed cost network as we secure new market share and new volumes aboard online. So I'll play that video now, please. So historically, uh, Leonora has been a gold and nickel shire. This is starting to change a little bit now. Um, there are people looking for rare earths and other such uh, metallic deposits. The importance to the, the country of this particular region is increasing. That will make Leonora a critical transport hub. And Cube, of course, have uh, recognised uh, the future potential for the town. So that's why they've decided to make the bold and critical investment in upgrading their rail facilities here in Leonora. We have an anchor contract here with uh, BHP. There's a town to the north of us, about 135 kilometres, called Linster. They have a nickel mine. The nickel concentrate's brought down by road um, down here to Leonora where we transfer everything from truck to the train. The isotainers containing the nickel concentrate transported down to the nickel smelter in Kalgoorlie. And in Kalgoorlie that's converted from 12% to I think it's around about 70% mat, which is then exported out by rail to Quinana to the refinery for BHP for the process for export. Uh, so we just moved nickel mat from BHP, the nickel smelter, um, down to the refinery. So we'll be tipping off coke and quartz and then loading it back with nickel mat and then sending it down to Perth and then also taking the residue from here to Murren. Yeah, up north and a few in between. We'll go out to Cambalda, load trains out at Cambalda, load export mat into 20-foot containers to go overseas to China and all that sort of stuff for the uh, lithium batteries.
I think the real quality of these videos is actually the people we've got in these videos, and they're all, I think we'll call that out, they're all real people, they're all really cube, rusted on cube employees, right across the business from whether Brooke's giving the intro in how she's trained people up in, in Townsville for the new rail services or... So I think, I think that's a really important part. So if you're not getting that through the, through the videos, I just wanted to call that out. We've got some great people in our business. Um, just moving forward to the outlook, I'll probably try and do it a little bit differently. Uh, but like uh, the ports and, and the logistics division, uh, business units, growth in, our, in the bulk business unit will really be driven by four key factors. Um, and those are the demand for the commodities in which we're, um, we're currently handling, uh, our organic pipeline, our ability to enhance or improve margins and the investments that we currently have underway in additional infrastructure that will be delivered at the back end of this year. And I'll just try and touch on each of those individually. In terms of the demand for the commodities, um, there's really two baskets of commodities in the cube bulk division. There's those critical minerals, which we've spent a lot of time on, on in these case studies, and then there's the the base commodities, that's the iron ore, the coals, etc. In terms of the critical minerals, we've got a very strong outlook there. Uh, we remain well positioned across the nickel, copper and lithium and also mineral sands businesses and we're confident in ongoing growth in there and, and we, both with the existing clients and our pipeline within that, within that, uh, within that sector. In terms of the steel making coals and iron ores that we handle, uh, we continue to see uh, fairly strong volumes there. In some areas they may be stronger than what we've seen in the past 12 months, particularly as Queensland still making coal, uh, uh, it starts to displace lower quality coals and the demand up through those coal fields are very strong. In terms of iron ore, we've seen the outlooks there. Most of our clients are maintaining their, their volume outlooks. I think yesterday there were some announcements around one of them um, and, we, and we don't expect them to be impacted their supply chains are materially more robust than they've ever been. The clients that we're handling aren't in the bottom quartile cost curves anymore and they've done a lot of work over the last, since 2014 to make sure that, they're, um, that they can weather um, the lower price environment. In terms of the organic growth pipeline, we've, I spoke about we've got a number of clients that were in discussions, most of them in fairly advanced discussions about expanding the scope of services that we supply to them. So that 45% of the volume I'm currently handling where there's opportunities, we will be uh, executing against those. We've also got a number of new projects uh, that we'll be delivering in the second half of this year. You know, in Geraldton, we've got a heavy precious metals and a mineral sands projects that will kick off. Uh, down in Esperance, we've got another nickel mine that we'll be taking over from another supply, supplier. Up in Darwin, we'll be kicking off core lithium. Uh, I haven't spoken heavily about the wind farm logistics, but we're just completing the Delaca wind farm. We're about to start the McIntyre wind farm, which is the largest wind farm in the southern hemisphere. And we've got two projects that sit right behind that that will see us with four or five years' worth of continuous business through Fisherman's Island doing wind farm logistics. Um, in terms of margins uh, and ability to maintain and enhance the margins, um, it's fair to say that COVID and the fuel spike, the recent fuel spike, has been challenging, but I think we've managed those very well. Last year was actually a very solid year for the cube bulk business. COVID certainly challenged us through delays in equipment, uh, and it's fair to say that a large parcel of equipment that we were expecting sort of 18 months prior arrived in May this year, and it's now deployed, and we've seen immediate financial benefits 
of that, particularly in the tasks that we've deployed that in, so getting the productivity that we expected. Uh, we've also been in conversations similar to, to Michael and John uh, with clients where inflation has moved slightly faster than anticipated. Um, and I must say, in all instances, we've been successful in agreeing fair outcomes that will deliver appropriate margins going forward across the bulk business. And lastly, a couple of investments. We've got a couple of bulk storage facilities that are underway right now. They'll be delivered at the end of this financial year uh, and, and they will certainly deliver incremental earnings and they're underpinned by long-term uh, client commitments. Um, so that's in terms of the outlook. In terms of acquisitions, I think it's a consistent message. There is a big pipeline of acquisitions that's sitting in front of us. Uh, we'll be very targeted on those acquisitions and the targets will be around making sure we can enhance our services to the critical minerals industry, but also being complementary to our existing operational footprint and also our client portfolio. So I'll just close out. I'll wrap that up. So hopefully um, you can see the QPOC business really does have an unrivaled capability to deliver in our own right, and we've got some of the best people in the industry working for us. Uh, we're positioned very well across the critical... Uh, minerals industries, coppers, the nickels, the lithiums, the leads, the zincs. Um, we've got a strong opportunity to continue to grow this business uh, through expanding our services to existing clients, through securing the work that is clearly identified in our pipeline, through ongoing margin improvement and by understanding and delivering against the opportunities that the energy transition uh, presents. So that's me done. I'm happy to take questions now. Thanks, Todd. Um, I might start with an online question. Um, the question is, of the 45% of, of customers who aren't taking up all of our services, yeah. uh, what, what's the reason they haven't taken up more and what are the sort of barriers or requirements in order to, to grow that number? Yeah, some, sometimes it's a capability thing. We'll start a service on what we can do and then we'll work into it. Other times they've made a selection of disintegrating their, their, their supply chain and they quickly work out that, that friction points add cost. So the sum of the lower costs don't equal what the actual total cost is. And when you actually start having those conversations and highlight that, people can see there is greater value in integrating supply chains and having one service provider. I think I said one throat to choke, particularly when you want to get your product to market when the market's buoyant. Hi, Owen Bill from RBC. Just a, a quick question around the, the acquisition pipeline. Um, just wondering if you can get us, give us a sense of the, the degree of competition for assets in the market at the moment. You know, there's a number of other sort of listed players out there that are chasing bulk assets for their own reasons. Um, just wondering how you're seeing that space and, you know, how do you stop your, you know, overpaying for assets in, the, in that market? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Um, clearly, you're talking about Horizon, but working into that I am. market. Yeah, so it's fine. Um, a lot of the acquisitions we, we do due, due diligence on are not a competitive process. A lot of them we identify over and over a number of months or years, we're working with the owners of those about what the strategic value of transitioning the ownership to us is. So a lot of them come about by that. Those that we are in a competitive process, you, you won't see us overpay. We've, we've walked away from a couple recently um, and they really do need to, to fit a set of, um, set of parameters that we've got internally agreed to uh, in terms of financial hurdles, in terms of strategic benefit 
in terms of fit with what, what we're doing um, in our business. Um, so yeah, that, there may be some competition, but I, I'm not seeing. I'm not seeing. We're not coming up against a rise in every acquisition we're looking at. And just on that, uh, can you rule out any interest in some certain uh, Hunter Valley coal assets? Uh, yeah, I can rule that out. Yes. Excellent. Thanks. Yeah. G'day, uh, Andre Fromia from UBS. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned one of the things that customers like about Cube is your willingness to invest. Um, can you talk a bit about how you get sort of appropriate contracts sitting behind that investment yeah. to underwrite the investment? And yeah. maybe expanding on that, how much of the CapEx going into bulk is supported by a contract versus, you know, things you're doing for yourself, multi-purpose uh, yeah. kind of size? Good question. I'll, I'll deal with the second part first. Nearly, nearly all of the work, nearly all of the volume in Cube Bulk is contracted. I'd say it's all contracted. Um, there's very few bits of spot work that we do. That um, typically is high margin. So if we're doing spot work, it's normally an opportunistic thing that's at high margin. If we're not doing spot work, it's typically contracted. Uh, typically, our contracts are a medium to longer term, so five to ten years with options. They're normally always underpinned by volume shortfall tariffs, um, and they're normally always underpinned, depending on the counterparty, by some other form of guarantee, depending on where we are in that miner's, you know, whether it's a real early piece or, or it's an established miner in an established market. Does that, sorry, does that answer that? Hi, uh, Todd Scott Ryle from Rymore. I was hoping to follow on on that maybe. Um, you spoke in the lithium example that you'd been working on it for seven years, if I've heard that correctly. Yeah, well, certainly the um, early Altura stories and the Pilbara Mineral stories uh, yeah. right, at, right at the start. Right? So I, my gut feel in, in terms of extending that is there's not many creditworthy counterparties at that stage. So I, I wonder yes. if you can talk to how you get your board to uh, make an investment on yeah. the back of, of something like that. And I, I think it's a great story when you invest early and then you, uh, you develop a footprint that, that looks really smart now. But how long does it take you to earn your required rate of return in, in cases like that where it's a long lead time? Yeah, normally they're all. Normally the required rate of returns hit fairly quickly because they're all underpinned by volume shortfall tariffs. So the tariffs normally set to deliver that. It's only when you have an administration event or a liquidation event that you you, you have a bit of an issue, and that goes to the heart of how we develop our business cases. We're typically putting infrastructure in locations that we already operate in, where we have a fair degree of confidence that should something go wrong, we're able to replace the volume with additional volume from existing clients or other, other clients that we know are in the market. So it's always a very informed decision around what we're doing um, in terms of those capital expenditures. And I think it's worth adding to that point. A lot of the assets are mobile equipment that can be redeployed fairly easily. Um, and the return requirements, given the risk, is generally at the upper end of our target hurdles. I thought I answered all your questions. <laughs> well, maybe another one. Um, okay. Ian Munro from Ords. Um, just wondering, with respect to um, some of those new resource areas you're going into, uh, yes. typically higher value, lower volume, yes. how does that affect the return profile for, for Cube? Yeah, so look, all of our the different commodities, there's always a, a, volume, a value over volume scenario that occurs. Um, and as we move into the, the higher value commodities, the battery minerals that we're talking about, 
typically the level of service the customer's after requires a, you know, a higher pricing point. Typically as we integrate things, there's an opportunity to release value that, that we, we're able to internalise a proportion of that. Um, and, and also, in a lot of instances, they're using um, the Rotobox system, those, the commodities we're talking about with lower volumes, because there's not bulk shiploading infrastructure. That's the first reason. And the second reason, which is a more important reason, and, and the reason why in a lot of instances, even if it was bulk shiploading infrastructure, they wouldn't move to it, is around the environmental footprint. So heavy base metals, finding their way into birth pockets is not a good thing. It's a very costly thing to clean up. So using the rotor box is a, is a strong protection against that occurring. That's the reason why Sandfire pushed it. That's the reason why you can see most of the copper supply chains across Australia have converted to rotor box, nearly all of them, and we touch all of them. Um, and most of the other heavy precious min minerals have moved to Rotobox, so it's a higher value thing to protect against that environmental risk that they, they, they do carry when loading bulk at the ports. Okay, any final questions for Todd? I got off easy. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Uh, now, Paul Digney to talk about Patrick Terminals. Okay. Uh, update on Patrick's terminals. Um, first, I'd like to mention, I mean, I mentioned before earlier when we went through the acquisition, um, the history and the acquisition timetable. Time um, in late 2016, we, we bought 50% of Patrick's with a, with a partner in Brookfield. Um, it was an exciting time, but at that same time, we made a decision. We were aware of some challenges and some headwinds potentially in, the, in that market at that point in time. But we also backed ourselves in regards to the upside and the, and the value we created. And it would be fair to say that our partner in Brookfield would appreciate us being a partner because we helped create some value over the course between now and, and, two, and, and 2022. Later in the presentation, I've got a scorecard on that and just to give us a bit of a scorecard of how well we've created that value over that period of time. Before I do that, I'll just touch on some um, key Patrick attributes today. Patrick's is, is a market leader in Australia with a market share of over 40% of the container handling movements across the nation over, over container wharfs. Patrick is one of only two national container terminal operators and has superior sites with, landside, with rail landside capabilities. Patrick's is a superior operating in Australia with a number of unique reasons, with both the, the quayside and the landside performance being well ahead of our competitors, which is a marketing advantage for, Q, uh, for Patrick's, and the capability of enabling modal shift with our rail investments. Patrick's has been at the forefront in, in building out their rail terminals before others, and we want to be ahead of the game strategically. Patrick's has been and is, and is a leader in autom automation technology within Australia, and has automated terminals both in Sydney and Brisbane. And Patrick has the advantage of long-term leases in all four strategic location, port locations. I'll take you through those port locations just in a minute. And Patrick has recently, has recently increased its landside fees in recent years to recover landside investment costs leading to the diversification of Patrick's revenue stream.
Patrick has a Pan Australia presence being located in Brisbane, Port Botany, Melbourne and Fremantle. The only competitor is DP World on that, on that footprint. Patrick has rail capabilities when other terminals don't. And nationally last year, Patrick's handled 3.3 million TEUs last year. I'll now take you through each terminal just briefly. Port Botany, Autostrad auto Terminal. Port Botany Terminal is an automated container terminal with four berths and 1,400 metre key line, which is the largest key line in Australia for, for a container terminal. It is an automated terminal, as I said. This property has a long-term lease in place to 2043. There is a total of nine key cranes and four of those key cranes are 20, 20 containers wide, ready for Neo, Neo Panamax vessels. Last year, Port Botany handled over 1.15 million TUs. And the Autostrad <coughs> terminal is now connected to an automated rail terminal, which you can see marked in green on, on, on the map here, which will be fully completed in 2023, when it will have four times 600 metre automated rail silings. A first for Australia, having an automated terminal connect to an automated rail terminal on the port. Melbourne East Swanson Dock. East Swanson Dock is a three terminal, three terminal, three berth terminal with 855 metres of key line. The property is also under a long term lease until 2066. There are a total of six key cranes. Two, two of these key cranes are 19, 19 containers wide, 12,000 TU vessel ready. Last year this, ter this terminal handled over a million TU. Currently there is an on-dock rail terminal currently being built which is, which is situated in green again on the map. This is, this is estimated to be finished in, next, uh, in, 20, in March 2023. So we'll have connection in, in Melbourne with rail as well as well as Sydney. Although this terminal is a manual terminal, it's well recognised as being the most efficient from a land side and key side in Australia. Brisbane Fisherman's Island Autostrad Terminal. This was the first automated terminal in Australia. This is a three berth terminal with, six, with 930 metres key line. It has a long term lease in place until 2045. The terminal has six key cranes, which includes three that are 20 containers, containers wide, which are Neo Panamax ready. Last year, this terminal handled over, handled over 700,000 TU and has recently rolled out an automated truck handling project, which complements the auto, auto strad yard. Again, a first in Australia to do this. Last terminal of the four terminals is our terminal in Fremantle. Fremantle Terminal is a two berth terminal with a, with a 640 metre key line. There is a mid-term lease in place to 2031. Currently the, 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 the wharf or the container terminals in Fremantle are expected to be relocated to Outer Harbour in, in Westport, Western Australian development 
we believe that 2031 will probably be extended probably to 20, 2036 and then Patrick's will be in that discussion about that transition at that point in time. But obviously that will be in a tender process. There are four key cranes at, at, at Fremel. One is 19, 19 containers wide and, th and three are 18 containers wide. Last year the terminal handled 419,000 TU. Currently the terminal is doing some upgrades, some work to the yard. At the back of the yard you'll see some dirt area connected to a rail terminal. There's works going on there to build that interface better between the, the terminal and the North Quay Rail and also to build the cargo link which is an empty container yard connection with the Fremantle terminal. A lot of these works um, today are assisting the landside um, productivity. With that, I'll take you on a virtual tour of the old four terminals. Patrick Terminals is Australia's preeminent terminal operator, handling more than 3.4 million TEU containers nationally each year, over 40% of all containerised cargo across Australia. Patrick is unrivalled in Australia in terms of crane capability, innovation advancement and technological capabilities. For more than 100 years, Patrick Terminals has led the way in productivity and efficiency in stevedoring operations. The Patrick portfolio consists of four strategically located terminals, Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne and Fremantle. Both Sydney and Brisbane terminals use automated straddle technology, with Brisbane being the first terminal in the world to implement Autostrad technology in 2005. Over the past 10 years, Patrick Terminals has invested close to $1 billion in infrastructure on the quayside and landside, technology and service solutions to provide for the growing needs of the Australian import-export container market. This has made significant improvements to productivity for both shipping lines and the landside transport companies. Investment has included additional crane technology at all terminals, with Sydney Terminal now offering the largest ship-to-shore cranes in Australia. New rail infrastructure, including recent investment in the construction of the Patrick Sydney Auto Rail Terminal, the world's first fully automated on-dock rail terminal connecting rail operations to the key line. Additional straddles, equipment and yard improvements to deliver improved operational efficiency. Patrick Terminals is Australia's leading terminal operator. Probably a theme here, just what I spoke about and also in the, in the video was there's no doubt Patrick leads the way in investment in Australia in container terminals as the most progressive in that space and we do that for, for strategic reasons. To be a leader, usually you've got an advantage. So as I mentioned before, I've broken this slide up into quayside, quayside and landside and landside investments. Just to break down the investments that's been made over the last three, three to four years on Patrick's or ongoing investments. As I said before, there has been, there's been some crane, we've got some crane capabilities to, to unload bigger ships. Five new cranes have been procured and, and, and 
have been um, constructed in recent times across, across the terminals you know, with the capabilities for large vessels going forward. In regards to our straddle, our stra a straddle um, fleet, Patrick's has, has replaced, replaced about 33% or will replace 33% of its straddle fleet by next year in a four-year period. That will deliver better reliability between the quayside and the landside, although it already has a, a superior performance. I've also called out on the land side a number of significant investments is, is around, is around on-dock rail, both in, in, Port Melbourne, uh, in Melbourne and Port Botany, obviously to be ahead of the game in that space and the modal shift. We also, we also, over the past four or five years, we've upgraded our terminal operating system, which has delivered better efficiencies, especially around truck turnarounds. And as, as I mentioned before, we did another world first just recently in Brisbane, where we, we rolled out our automated truck handling project, whereby a container or containers are loaded onto a truck via automation. This has delivered both improved efficiencies in truck turnarounds and has connected the yard to the, to the, 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 truck, the truck handling area. And I just mentioned before, there's, there's some ongoing improvements going on at Fremantle around the development. And a lot of them are to do with yard and truck interface efficiencies, building a direct interface with the rail terminal, improving the cargo link interchange area and fixing up some much needed paving and yard, yard improvements. That was a commitment we made to the Fremantle port when we had the lease extended to 2031 just recently. All right, now I turn to just a quick snapshot in regards to the business. Strong, strong earnings growth in Patrick's in recent times. The business was quite, quite resilient during the, during the COVID pandemic and it remains on track to deliver strong EBITDA growth in full year 2023. Significant quayside and landside investments across the past three years, which I just mentioned before, will drive improved performance and potentially cost savings and maintain a competitive advantage. And further automation and technology issues are in place to drive further cost savings going forth to keep us the most progressive Steve at all in the country. As I mentioned earlier, I thought it's time for a scorecard. So since our initial investment in 2017, Tube and the Patrick's management team has created value. And I'd just like to call out a few here around operation performance and financial performance. Since 2017, we've improved profits and EBITDA, as you see on this slide. We've improved revenue per lift. We've improved the revenue combination with a more balance between quayside and landside activities and the cost allocation to recover that cost allocation. We've improved the return on capital, the average capital employed, with an upward, upward, upward trend upward trend towards, say that five times, <laughs> to 10% in the near future. And we'll greatly improve the safety performance. When we took, when we took over this, the, the, the safety metrics in Patrick's was probably at an all-time high. A considered approach by the management team, the safety team and the board um, dramatically improved the safety performance of Patrick's, as you can see from the tripper on this slide moving from 31.8 to 7.8 in the period. And we did that, over, and that, that, made, that trend kept going down, although we had industrial action for about two years with the waterfront. 
So it was a great effort by management and a great focus. Second part of the scorecard was what I spoke about. In 2017, we understood there would be some potential challenges and headwinds in this business. But we knew that we could create value and we knew that we could navigate our way through, through these challenges. Just to call out a couple of these key enterprise risks that we've actually reduced, we've reduced the significant risk in recent times. Terminal capacity in Melbourne. When we invested in Patrick's, a new, a new third operator commenced at Victor at Web Dock. But since then, market, market capacity, the surplus market capacity has shrunk as, market, as the market has grown. So we are now in a better position than we were in 2017 in regards to that. Industrial relations. We inherited an agreement that contained a lot of restrictive constraints. Last, the recent negotiations, which was long drawn out, as you probably may, may be aware, we've removed a lot of those conditions going forward and we're in a much better position to deliver better productivity going forward. Large vessels in Melbourne. There was a risk that large vessels in Melbourne would, would reduce significant volume to East Swanson. Over the, over, the, over the past five years, Port of Melbourne has increased the size of vessels that can go upriver to the East Swanson dock. And further trials are underway, and it is unlikely that, that it will be... Oh, Sorry, there's further trials underway which will see probably larger vessels being able to dock at East Swanson Dock um, in the future and minimise the risk of the amount of big ships that may not be able to call East Swanson Dock in the future. As mentioned earlier, Patrick's has recently increased its, its landside fees in recent years to recover landside investment costs and diversify the Patrick's revenue stream over the period obviously helping the return on capital. And probably lastly, since 2017, the Patrick's Terminal has renewed three of their four leases for long-term leases, which is Fremantle, Port Botany and the Melbourne Terminal. All right. Next topic, which I thought we'd get some questions on this, so I thought I might try and just set the scene anyhow take the questions in a couple of minutes. Um, I just want to touch on two things in regards to the, the Productivity Commission's current review of the maritime you know, container, biz, container business. Um, the first one is industrial relations. Obviously, if anyone's read the draft recommendation, obviously there's a, there's a, there's a focus from the, from the Commission in regards to actually improving the industrial relations on the waterfront, which I think everyone knows and everyone would like to see. Um, the focus is on removing some of these restrictive workplace arrangements, improving the enterprise agreement, uh, enterprise bargaining process, which sometimes takes too long, and, and we have industrial relations, we have industrial actions because of that. Our view is, from a Patrick's point of view, right at this point in time, that all sounds good, and we like we like the recommendations. But at the end of the day, just recently, Patrick's has. Um, improved its workplace agreement through the last, last negotiations, has, has been able to achieve better flexibility around their, and less restrictive workplace arrangements. And we, we welcome this, but we also welcome this to make sure it's better, it's, it's in the interest of both our employees and ourselves going forward. 
And the last thing I'll probably say in regards to this landscape is this is not a Productivity Commission thing, but it's probably an ACT-driven <laughs> thing, is that although there's a drive, and I think this, this, is, this is off the table now for industry-wide bargaining, that definitely is not the answer <laughs> for productivity on our Australian waterfront going forward. Uh, the second topic here in terms of the recommendations was the landside, landside fees being regulated to only, only be charged to the shipping lines and not to the trans, transport operators. Firstly, I'd like to say this is a draft recommendation only and I know there's, there's, not, there's not a lot of universal consensus on, this, on the draft at this point in time. There's a lot of difference of opinion. And as recently as March, states and territories agreed to pursue a voluntary framework and we support that as a sensible next step. But if the draft recommendation did make, make it through to implementation following consultation, which there's a long way to go, Patrick's would not negatively be impacted as Patrick's will pass on these charges to the shipping lines. But the one certainty is that if this draft recommendation that, that is set out will impact the landside interface, it'll go back decades from an efficiency point of view. It'll unbalance what has already been rebalanced. I'll leave it there. Lastly, Patrick's has delivered on its five-year plan and is, in is on track to deliver the next five-year plan. Just to call out a few points here. Patrick's will continue to invest in both quayside and landside plant, property and equipment. It will focus on maintaining market share around the 41 to 43%. It will deliver on its key rail projects in Sydney and Melbourne and facilitate modal shift and be a market leader in that space. It will continue to progress key automation and productivity projects ahead of its rivals and now has the opportunity to implement productivity benefits post the new EA implementation. And as I mentioned before, we'll continue the improvement in the return on capital, targeting above 10% in the mid-term. That concludes my presentation on Patrick's, but I am happy to take questions now. Hi, uh, Paul Butler from Credit Suisse. Um, a couple of questions. Uh, firstly, uh, I think there's been some press speculation that Brookfield's looking to um, liquidate their investment. It, could you comment on you know, whether there's any advantages to Cube from having more than a 50% stake in Patrick? Um, good question. Before that be the first question. At this point in time, Obviously, Brookfield aren't intending to sell. That's, I mean, we would, we would know first. We, we have to know first. <laughs> um, so for us, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of timing, I think, in decide. I mean, there is some benefits for us to own 100% and we'd like the asset and we'd like to own, own, own the asset at 100%. But it all comes down to value at the end of the day. And it'll be... And it'll, and it'll come down to the landscape at the end of the day, if it's one, two years, three years' time, whatever it is. So... It's hard for me, you know, everything being equal and price and cost of funds and whatever, it is a nice fit for Cube. Do we need to own all of, all of Patrick's? No. 
So I'm not really giving you a right answer at this point in time because until it comes to sale, I can't really give you, I can't, I can't give the right position on it. Um, it'll come down to funding. It'll come down to debt and equity funding at that point in time. Um, there is synergy value. There is synergy value in, in, in Patrick's for us, but how big that is compared to the price you want to pay, um, that's a decision we need to make at the time when we know exactly what that landscape is. Okay. Um, and, and secondly, on the land side infrastructure charges, um, you, you, you make the comment that things would go backwards a long way in terms of efficiency, but, but I think in the Productivity Commission's draft report, they, they, they did say that charges to the land side would be appropriate for, for the case of you know, making sure that the, um, there's efficiency. What exactly do you mean where you're yeah. saying it goes back 10 years in terms of efficiency? Yeah, it was, so traditionally, you know, traditionally 10, 15 years ago, you know, your quayside charges and your landside charges might be 95, 5%, whatever it was. And so you've got a dominant customer as, as a terminal. You've got the shipping lines as your dominant customer. So the focus around KPIs around performance goes to the quayside to the detriment of the land side. And so what we had 10 or 15 years ago, whatever it was, get the ships unloaded quick, deal with the yard later on. And so there's inefficiencies, log jams, backlogs, truck queues, eight-hour truck queues. It'll just shift back to that. It is not the answer. This is not the answer. The answer at the moment is there's a voluntary framework in place and the transport operators... I can't speak for all of them, but most of them will be on board with this now, is that it is a way of, it's still in a part of that evolution to make sure that the container terminal operators are accountable and there's better ways to make them accountable going forward. They've got a voice at the table because they are a customer. And at the end of the day, the terminals aren't making excessive profits. You'll read, you'll read the ACCC monitoring report, you'll read all that. So this needs to be recovered. But you want to be able to balance... What's, what's been happening, what's been occurring over the last 10 years has been this balance of putting so many assets on the key side, so many assets investment on the, on the land side. Patrick's probably been at the forefront. He's probably doing it more than the others. The others got to catch up a little bit more. But it's also the resourcing of it. You'll have, you'll have situations, and especially with big ships and big ships bunching, the shipping line might put the pressure on. Hang on, a couple of ships are late. All the, Port Botany's got all the berths full push all your labour or push all your, all your or in, in the case of um, um, Port Botany, push all your straddles because there's no labour with the straddles, but push, push all, your, all your equipment. We want 80% of your equipment doing this at the moment and the yard, the yard suffers. The transport operators suffer because what they have to do then, they have to catch up. I'll catch up on a Sunday. I'll bring all the boxes back to the yard. The only way they can get them out quick enough is in, is in a bulk run. They never wanted a bulk run. They wanted to pick them up and deliver them straight to the customer. It needs to be double handled. So there's all this flow on effect, and I don't think I don't think the product productivity commission has really considered that or had had listened to a lot of, lot of the whole audience at this point in time. So, and this is what this voluntary framework has done. I mean, it's been it's been endorsed by by state state ministers, transport and infrastructure ministers. It's been rolled out by the National Transport Commission. It was only it's it's just it just contradicts what what the productivity commission is considering. And the ACCC is not supporting this at this point in time. They're saying we still want a monitoring role. We want to work through this. So I think the evolution is just to make this voluntary framework still, can, still play itself out. 
And if pricing does get excessive, then obviously the ACCC will have a, have a further involvement in it. But this, at this point in time, it's been, the stevedore has been able to deliver with more efficiency, make more investment and deliver a much productive waterfront. Better than it was 10 years ago. That's my comment. Yeah. Uh, just, just to follow up on that, um, so as you say, 10 years ago or so, you know, less than 5 or 5% of the revenue came from the land side. I don't know, I don't know the exact number. Though. But anyway, it, it's obviously grown massively. Now it's yeah. over 40, 40%. Where could it get to? I, I mean, assuming that, you know, the Productivity Commission doesn't request any changes. I think, I think there will be a point where it has to balance out, right? Because the whole idea of it is to balance out two baskets of costs and make sure you get a return on both. One, one, wasn't, one wasn't recovering enough and the other one was recovering probably enough or just above enough. So there's been a balancing of, the, of, of those baskets to get to a point. And you know, a commitment by Steve it was, you know, higher rent with privatisation too that comes through. And then, in, and, the, and the requirement in some of those leases that we want you to do this, we want you to do this, we want you to deliver these interfaces. So it can't all go one way. It's got to get recovered. So I think the mechanism, mechanism's right. And there'll be a point that, that that's monitored over time. And, and a part of this voluntary framework is, is for the state government bodies, that, you know, the, the transport bodies, the Department of Transport, to have a, have a bigger involvement of, of the visibility and have the transport operators understand what they're getting, the bang for their buck. At the end of the day, they've got to pass it on to the shippers. But it's a cost that the shippers need to, need to wear because it's a cost plus a margin at this point in time. It's not a cost plus a massive margin. It's a cost plus a margin. So it's, I think this has got a lot of, a lot of work to be done. Um, and it's, that's where I think it's at at the moment. Paul, Jake Kakanis from Jarden. Just one question on the EBITDA uplift that we've seen over FY22 and probably started in the second half of 21. How much of that would you attribute to the market uplift? I know that you've said you've been reasonably flat on your lifts and how much of that either early signs of automation and the rail link going into port? Yeah, I, I mean, a big part about this is, is the revenue uplift. Is, is, I mean, that's obvious. You can look at the numbers. Um, you know, the, the landside fees that went up in, in the March the previous year would be a big portion of that. But there has been improvement in our business around around productivity, um, and we're, we're seeing we're seeing it even a little bit better now now that we've got through the industrial action side of things and the automation things. So there is a portion of of getting the value through the investment we made around efficiencies there to deliver a better, better cost outcome. Um, I think that answers the question. Uh, second one, probably a bit more inflammatory. Um, questions that we get all the time, how will the cube share price reflect the value of Patrick? How do you guys think about that as a management team and as a board? What, what do you think the market needs to see to get that reflected into the share price? Um, I want to answer that because I'm, I mean, I, I just think probably the market needs to maybe value what I've just said around the ability, ability to create value, ability to navigate through headwinds, um, have a bit of confidence in the forward projection of the earnings of this business going forward. It's up for you guys to, to decide what forward multiple you might put on a business and 
how you might look at the sensitivities and, and that sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, there, there should be maybe a bit more confidence in, in Cube owning it, Patrick's management team navigating our way through. If there is some headwinds, we'll, we'll find a way. And there's potential um, margin improvement ahead for this business. Yeah, I think the only thing I'd add to that is there's no question Patrick's a very high-quality infrastructure asset. Um, you've got the four terminals. Australia is not going to suddenly start manufacturing en masse. So you've got a long-term GDP-plus type business. For the reasons Paul said, you've got the best sites at Patrick. They've already undertaken most of the investment phase. So it is very high cash generative. And Mark in his presentation will just highlight the cash flow that Cube's received from Patrick. Um, you've got the diversification of revenue now. While it's still a long way from earning an acceptable return, it's moving in the right direction. Um, so we think, again, the only way you'll know definitively is when Brookfield do come to market, whether we buy it or someone else buys it, there's going to be an objective price that it trades at. But we certainly think the value has increased significantly from the time we bought it for all the reasons that it pulls gone through, both the EBITDA growth but also de-risking it. So what sort of multiple that should trade on? Um, again, everyone will have their view, and when there is a trade, we'll know for sure. Paul, just questions about pricing. So you're at that, you're within that range as far as your market share is concerned. Are you starting, given the operational performance of Patrick relative to others, starting to price higher to shipping lines, irrespective of this terminal access charge change potential? Probably a bit sensitive at the moment, but we are, yeah, we are considering you know, the value that we that we deliver in pricing both both on the key side and the land side going forward at the moment. Okay. But no magnitude at this point? Uh, it varies. <laughs> um, and, and secondly, volumes, I think you talked about for Cube, volume is strong for the first quarter or, or the business performing better than internal expectations. Can you talk to how Patrick performed in that quarter? We obviously saw very strong volumes through August. Just wondering if they'd continued through September and, and into early October. Yeah, yeah the performance was, was quite good, so it was, was, was around the expectation. Um, so, and, and productivity, as I think I mentioned before, the productivity was, was probably better than we expected. So that was a good outcome coming up off the back of the industrial action, which we thought would happen. And, and you've mentioned a GDP plus kind of a business, but as we look into the future potential for a recession, the currency at 64 cents, 65 cents, makes imports harder potentially. The expectation into the second half is that volumes would slow? I think there is an expectation, yeah. I think um, there will be some, we're expecting some slowing, but overall I think probably where we, where we had the price increases last year, which we get the flow on benefit till March, this year, March, this, current, this financial year, and plus the benefits we're getting through productivity at the moment. I think that puts us in a nice spot at the moment to, to negate some of that downturn, if it is downturn. I think we'll be kidding ourselves if there's not that downturn on imports, but we think export, exports will be stronger too, so um, there might be, might be a balancing out there. So. Great. Um, I think we've got lunch break now on our schedule, so... Okay, one more question, but people feel free to ask questions during the lunch break to the management team. Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Paul. Just uh, one more, please, Ian from Ords. Uh, just 
thinking about the um, investment profile that's gone on in Melbourne, obviously Frio and, and Botany here, you, you're reaching the end of some of those programs next year. How do we think about you know, the free cash flow and uh, I guess yeah. the, the, the level of maintenance capex that we'll, we'll incur from a yearly basis on, on from that? Patrick. Patrick. Uh, um, I, I think we're in a good space there. We're actually doing a lot of investment and we're currently getting to the end of some of the big chunks of investment. So, as I said, we've been pretty progressive with that. We also um, we saw, saw the benefit of bringing some of that. We brought those straddles forward for a certain reason, but we also brought it for a reason for a financial reason. So, um, around price and there were some other benefits to, to do that. So, we brought, we brought some of our, our maintenance capex forward. So, going forward, we've probably we've brought some of that maintenance capex forward. And obviously we've built out a lot of the, I guess, the maintenance of the yards and some of the some of the productivity stuff. I mean, once we get through the back end of um, well, through through this financial year, there's probably going to be less less less. There's definitely less capex being spent for a period of time. Great. Thanks. We'll have a 30-minute lunch break now. If everyone can please be back by uh, 1:45, and we'll continue with the financial section with Mark. Thanks very much.
Hi, everybody. Excuse me. Excuse me. Just uh, would just like to get this uh, next session started so Paul can put the beers on. So, Sarah. We all good to go from an online perspective? Yep, good, thanks. Uh, well, thanks everybody. Um, thanks for attending uh, in person and for those uh, online, thank you. It's been a, a long day. Uh, I've been CFO at Cube now for a little under six months. I, I, I click over that metric next, next week, so hopefully I'll finish, get through my probationary period. Right, Paul? Um, so uh, I, I appreciate, uh, I've been spending that time getting to know the business, getting to know the people within the business, uh, getting to know our investors and various other people that support our business, including the, uh, the analyst community um, and, uh, and, and our banking group. There's a few of them here today, so thanks for coming. Um, today I'm going to run you through a few financial slides. Some of them, uh, I should uh, get the clicker. They're all on the agenda here. Some of them I'm just going to be presenting and talking very briefly through material that's already been uh, publicly available. Um, and some slides I'll dwell on a little bit longer. I did commission some really fantastic videos uh, around the finance function, but Paul wouldn't allow me to play them because I might have uh, made the other operating division videos look pretty substandard. <laughs> I'll save them for next time. Anyway, I'm going to forget about this. My, next, my first slide, I, I've chosen this as my first talking slide because I think it's a, a really key element to the power behind Cube. And it's very important for our investors and other people to understand and, uh, and, and better appreciate. As per Paul's um, session earlier, as well as um, the business unit leaders, you know, this is a very diverse business. Uh, we operate in a number of ge geographies across a number of commodities, providing a number of different services. So I guess the question for me coming into it and, uh, is how do we control this? What's the financial control and governance structure behind Cube? to support this diverse business. And it is multi-layered, as you can see on the slide. It, it starts at the profit centre level. John referred it to, uh, I think, operating unit OU. Is that right, John? And, um, and uh, we have two, 270 of these currently, over 270. So across 160 locations. So that, uh, I'm going to get back to those uh, in the detail behind those in a sec. But for some of the examples you can see on the slide would be around individual warehouses, so Moorbank, for example, and a number of other warehouses that the guys manage. The NAT and Quattro Terminal uh, would be ind independent profit centres. Uh, each port and each rail terminal uh, we operate at and each of Todd's bulk, uh, bulk operations would have independent P&Ls. Uh, each of the, these groups of P&Ls, uh, sorry, profit centres then report up to, uh, to regions or, uh, or business groups, and we have around 20 of those across the group today. Examples of those, and, and JD mentioned, uh, he, he manages his business mostly on a state basis, so New South Wales, Queensland, etc., will have consolidated P&Ls at that level. And then uh, for Michael, he'll have, uh, it's more either regions, New, New Zealand, for example, or, or service, Australian ports, um, uh, forestry, etc. And Todd, it's mostly around uh, regions, as in Pilbara, South East Queensland, uh, and renewable energy. So each of these region groups, the 20 of them then report up to the three guys that you've uh, heard, of, heard from earlier today. So that's sort of the structure that it, uh, in terms of how, how we uh, report up it's, uh, at multiple levels as I mentioned. 
Um, but getting back to the profit centres, this is where it really it, it all starts. Uh, this is where the lowest levels of P&Ls are generated across our business and, and these are typically set up based on specific operational activities, sites or customer contracts. Each of the profit centres are managed by uh, experienced and empowered operations managers, uh, many of whom are responsible for more than one profit centre. You've seen a number of those on the various videos that we showed uh, during the course of today. Um, it's at this level that we prepare the annual operating budgets and these are built from the ground up by the operational managers supported by the various levels above them, the regional and group management teams and, and JD and Michael and Todd as well, as well as the Cube finance team. The operations managers, they own their, their budgets and are highly accountable for the, uh, for the, for the delivery of those budgets um, and, uh, and they get monthly P&Ls that, uh, that they report on up the line. Um, in some instances, the operational management or P&L management, as JD in particular said, is done on a, on, on a weekly basis. But it's, uh, at, at all levels, it's, it's done it monthly. In some levels, and particularly across your business, JD, it's, it's been doing weekly and, and for many, many years. So they, uh, the, the tasks we manage and the commodities we move through the supply chain, again, as you've heard earlier today, are many and varied. Uh, and in most instances, no two profit centres look alike uh, and are directly comparable, uh, even if they handle the same commodity. And I'll, I'll take you through an example. Um, contracts for two separate lithium contracts um, or logistics activities on different sites may involve significantly different material handling requirements uh, and logistics solutions. They might also be driven by customer volumes that are required to be moved, distances, geography, the assets and the utilisation of those assets and a multitude of other factors. The actual volume based rates per tonne uh, for each profit centre are therefore likely to be very different from one to, to another for those reasons. I mention this because I, I get, I've had a lot of questions in the time that I've been here at, at Cube and even in that lunch break uh, around how, uh, you know, what are the key operational drivers um, that, that, that they can look to to help, help build their models, right, uh, at, at a Cube level. And you've, you've heard from the presenters before me that they've got specific things, you know, volumes on rail, lithium and, and a whole... logs, etc. Um, but the, the reality is because of the complexity of every profit centre looking a little bit different, rates being different, or managers will have reviews with their regional and, and group managers and who will have reviews with uh, the, the business unit managers who will then have reviews with uh, Paul and myself. So there's a lot of back and forth and it's not just around you know, the financial performance of the business, there's operational, there's safety and there's a whole host of other factors that get talked about. And it's really not just about the financial uh, performance of what they've done for the month, it's the outlook as well. So and that gives us a great ability to get a thing, our finger on the pulse of what's going on in the business and how the next, uh, next period of time is, uh, is, is looking. Uh, this, this slides around our investment, uh, sorry, five-year financial performance. This, this stuff's all been public before. We, we released it in August as well. Uh, so I won't spend too much time on it. 
Um, but you can see from an operating division perspective, our underlying revenue over the last five years has, has grown to around 13% CAGR. Um, the group underlying EBITDA has been consistent year on year growth, albeit flat in that very first year of COVID, and that CAGR is a little under 10%. And on underlying EBITDA on a proportional basis, which includes the 50% of Patrick, has now tipped over 500 million. And again, on, on this basis, we see uh, CAGR at uh, just over 9%. From a return on capital employed, uh, this is for, for Cube Group and for Patrick. Firstly, in regards to Cube, you see the returns improved significantly in uh, FY22 as we benefited from delivering record earnings performance, which we spoke about in August. Uh, in addition, our capital employed reduced noticeably as a result of the divestment of the Moore Bank, uh, Moore Bank Logistics Park in December 21. Given our outlook for continued strong growth in 23, coupled with the benefit of having a full year of, of that Moore Bank investment out of our average capital investment, we should see that, uh, that, that uh, ratio improve further in 23. Our target at this moment is to set returns on average capital employed for the, for the group at above 10%. We did have a question online around whether that target will change. I think given that we're not quite there yet, 10% uh, is a good target to have, but uh, we'll continue to monitor that. And uh, if we get there earlier than we thought, we'd, uh, we certainly, I'm sure the board will pressure us to uh, continue that, uh, that upward journey. Um, you should remember that our capital base actually still does include um, some amounts relating to the divestment of Moorbank at June we still had circa 300 million of deferred consideration that hadn't, hadn't been received. 200 did come through in August. So there's, uh, that, will, that will help lower our capital invested as well. And, uh, and we've had investments in both the IMEX and now starting to spend money on the interstate terminals, which are not, uh, these are longer term investments. I'll talk about that later on in my presentation. So, um, so you know, our capital base is not really uh, delivering to the full extent that it can because of those types of issues. Um, for, for Patrick, um, sorry, I've just lost my spot. Um, turning to Patrick, we see good growth in return on capital, as Paul mentioned in the, the, his presentation just before lunch, uh, from 20 to 22. And given our outlook for continued strong growth in 23, we should expect that to improve further. And, uh, and as, he, as he mentioned, we're also targeting a return above 10% for that uh, very important asset. From a dividend perspective, uh, post the monetisation of Moorbank, the Cube Board set a dividend policy of um, payout ratio of 50 to 60 per cent of underlying EPSA, oh, sorry, EPS before amortisation. Uh, obviously, in determining dividends at any point in time, the Board will consider relevant matters around capital expenditure requirements, uh, our financial outlook and, and the overall and other economic factors. Um, the objective is very clear, but is to grow our uh, ordinary annual ordinary dividend aligned to growth in our underlying EPSA. Additional capital initiatives may be considered from time to time, including special dividends, and I think I put in the notes there that we've made some special dividends over the last few years, um, so we'll consider that at the, at the right time. Net debt and gearing, we do have a very conservative balance sheet. Obviously, the proceeds from the sale of Moorbank received in December 21, allowed Cube to materially reduce our debt levels during the course of that year and additionally undertake a $400 million share buyback uh, completed in May. 
Um, so that was uh, a very positive for the, the, in terms of our, our balance sheet. As at June 22, we have circa 1.3 billion of undrawn debt within the facilities that we have, uh, with an average maturity profile of 2.1 years. Uh, it should be noted that the large part of our debt facilities that are due to um, expire or mature in FY24 are currently undrawn. Uh, as a business, as we stand right today, we do not require that level of, uh, of liquidity. So we're, we're looking at, uh, we're doing work right now on right-sizing our, our facilities and also extending the maturity profile. We do have a, as you've got on the slide here, we've got a, a target gearing ratio between 30 to 40%. We're currently well below that. And uh, with the 200 million we received uh, in August, uh, that improved even further. Looking forward on a medium to longer term basis, we do look to sort of target our leverage in the 2 to 2.5 times range and we do seek to be sort of considered a, uh, an investment grade credit. In terms of cash conversion, uh, Cube has historically delivered at or around the 100% uh, cash conversion of EBITDA. Uh, in FY22, we, we did see a dip in that to 71%, which I spoke about at the August results. For, there were a number of reasons behind that. Uh, but I am confident that Cube will get back to those historical levels around, uh, around 100%. Finally, on this slide, I wanted to point out that over the past five years, Patrick has delivered over $450 million of cash back to Cube. So this is just our share of the distributions from Patrick. Obviously, uh, Brookfield have had the same amount. So it's been a very cash-generative business, and, and uh, as Paul mentioned, their investment cycle, this is through their investment cycles in the automation and rail terminals, etc., um, and that should slow down a little bit in the coming years and so cash distributions, uh, particularly on a growing EBITDA, should improve even further. Uh, CapEx, I've got two slides on CapEx and, and growth CapEx I've split into two categories. The first chart at the top separates out uh, growth CapEx, typical growth CapEx, which is stuff which really I'd, I'd allocate through to the business units as well as acquisition CapEx over the last five years. Uh, all of this capex should be viewed as discretionary uh, in that we, we can elect not to make that investment. If it doesn't pass the strategic and financial hurdles or return criteria that, uh, that we set, uh, we won't make that investment. Um, in regards to investments, again, we target the 10% return on capital. Now, that's the target level. Many of our um, investment opportunities that come our way are above that level and we'd expect that. Uh, given our financial strength, I, I currently don't have an issue around or major challenges or restrictions around how we deploy capital, apart from those hurdles that we've set ourselves. Each opportunity from each business unit will be taken on its merits and, uh, and a decision made accordingly. This growth capex typically results in relatively quick contributions to earnings. and Luckily, Todd uh, said the same thing. As assets are deployed or we...
implementing the, uh, the terminal uh, automation piece. The interstate terminal at Moorbank is, is currently under, under construction and uh, that's due to be completed at the end of calendar year 23. On completion, uh, in the interstate terminal will be majority owned by Cube, 65% with the balance owned <coughs> by Logos and the National Intermodal Corporation. As uh, I think Paul or JD mentioned, the IMAX terminal will be 100% owned by, or is 100% owned by Cube and operated by Cube. The return profile for both these terminals will be longer than, um, than, than uh, typical assets. We expect it may take five to seven years post-completion to ramp up returns to targeted levels. After listening to JD's presentation earlier, I'll probably bring that forward because uh, he's very bullish around, the, around both terminals, which is great. Uh, but but at, at the end of the day, be, the utilisation of both those terminals will be very dependent on the timing of the completion of the build-out of the warehouses at the logistics warehouse, uh, Moorbank Park, and, uh, and the tenanting of those, uh, of those warehouses. Uh, turning to maintenance capex, this slide sets out our maintenance capex spend and the percentage that that represents against our underlying depreciation expense. Apart from a very low spend year in FY19, which I haven't, uh, haven't sort of gone back in history to figure out what, why that was so low, maintenance capex has been running in the 80 to 95 per cent range of uh, underlying depreciation. In August, when we did our full year results, I guided to 85 to 95 per cent, which we're, we're holding that guidance uh, for 23. Given the strong focus on preventative maintenance, which goes into our, uh, the OPEX, uh, Cube does expect that most assets that we uh, have can be utilised well past their depreciation periods. I expect going forward that maintenance capex may be somewhat lumpy and, uh, and, and one of my tasks going forward is to do some further work on that in regards to trying to understand you know, better profiling around medium to longer term uh, reinvestment cycles. The last dot point on this slide uh, is to highlight that we currently have not fully uh, considered how and when the availability of low or, or, or no carbon, lower or no carbon uh, usage assets will play into our future capex requirements. Given where the technology sits today, it is unlikely to be material for, to, to cube in the next two to three years. That said, as we have been replacing existing fleets, and I think the guys have spoken to this, we do look to bring in new, more energy efficient assets into the business. Uh, acquisitions. Uh, as Paul set out at the beginning of today, Cube has a very strong record of identifying and completing accretive strategic and, uh, and, and or bolt-on acquisitions and then quickly integrating them into the business units with, uh, within the operating division. Typically acquisitions are initiated from the within the business units and frequently on a negotiated bilateral basis. Non-competitive processes uh, is what we like best. Uh, some opportunities, as uh, I think again Todd said, can take years of engagement before a transaction evolves. That said, we do get a lot of inbound inquiries regarding all sorts of M&A opportunities. And Shane, who looks after that from, from our, uh, at, a, at a group level, uh, gets bombarded with all sorts of uh, crazy ideas, but we're pretty disciplined and structured in the way we evaluate those. Uh, so any opportunity going forward must fit strategically. That's the most important thing. Uh, does, it, is it, uh, does it fit within what we are doing or what we want to be doing uh, before having to pass financial hurdles and, and, and other investment decision hurdles, including our ESG considerations? If we're interested in an opportunity, uh, then do, 
detailed due diligence will be undertaken using uh, both internal and external resources. And uh, whilst we have a strong balance sheet um, and significant appetite and capacity to undertake M&A, the timing of landing of, of, of those opportunities will be lumpy. In the meantime, we'll be very disciplined and patient in our approach to, uh, to any M&A. Uh, this slide you've seen before, this is Paul's slide. I was a bit annoyed because I did a little bit of it as well, but uh, I think Paul should get uh, design credit. Uh, I, I put this up as well because um, it, it's, uh, I, I wanted to include it because it sort of sets out the multiple pathways and the enormous potential that Cube has to continue over the coming years uh, to deliver sustainable long-term uh, revenue growth and margin expansion, leading to obviously continued growth in our underlying earnings, uh, return on capital employed expanding to above the 10% targets that we've set ourselves in the first instance and continued um, EPSA and dividend growth. Finally, last slide. Um, I just want to leave you with a few key takeaways uh, from, from my section. We do have a sound balance sheet and we have significant available liquidity to, to deploy. Uh, and the business does deliver strong cash generation. We will continue to be patient and disciplined in our M&A uh, activity and with the deployment of growth capex. Uh, the team is very focused on sustainable, profitable growth, margin expansion, increasing dividends and improving our return on capital employed. We will remain disciplined on how we fund our continued growth and we will not take on too much debt. We have a strong culture of P&L ownership and accountability and that drives operational performance and financial outcomes. Finally, we have an experienced, empowered and agile operational management team. And they can flex their operations up and down if the situation or the opportunity requires it. So that's it for me. Uh, I can take some questions now or I'm not sure whether we want to... Paul's just got a trading update and then we're going to do a panel. We'll do it with a panel if that's okay. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to any questions you have covering my area. Okay, last session before the big panel. Outlook. Um, before I go into the outlook, I'll just well, give a bit of outlook, but I think um, as a part of the, the full year 22 results, we called out a number of challenges we had in full year 22 and the impacts that, that occurred in 2022. I thought it would be a good idea to provide a bit of an update in regards to the, those areas and I think some of those areas have been addressed, not with it, or maybe all have been addressed today, but I'll, I'll just summarise them. Um, the first one, COVID-19, obviously the situation is better and that's improving for us. That's the obvious one. Um, inflation, as you probably heard today <coughs> from a number of the speakers, we're, I think we're in a very good position in regards to inflation. Um, if I summarise it, logistics and infrastructure were a little bit ahead of the curve last year and, and, and got some rate restorations and got their pricing increase early. As you probably heard from Michael and, and Todd, those things are happening in the first quarter, so we'll see some improvement there in regards to cost recoveries and getting ahead of, ahead of the inflationary costs. So overall, that's in a better position than it was last year. The next one, extreme weather events. <coughs> They're the same. <laughs> 
as you probably know. <laughs> Um, we're still seeing floods and we're still seeing impacts but we're navigating our way around that and hopefully at some point within the, within the 12 months we'll, we'll get a nice run with some, some train services and have less impacts. But I think overall we are manage, managing those, those weather um, impacts as we did last year but they are around and they are a nuisance. Supply chain disruptions. Um, obviously we're seeing improvement in regards to supply, supply chain disruptions. Overall, our customers are probably getting some benefit from that. Overall, it doesn't, it's pretty neutral for us at the end of the day because if there is dis disruptions, we're fixing their problems. Well, otherwise, we're still providing a service. Where, where we did get impacted last year was that we had, and probably Todd mentioned this in his presentation, that if you look at the Goldfields um, uh, new contract that we were rolling out, we had to wait know, 12 to 18 months for equipment where we reassumed where we nine months and that came at a big cost for us. Currently in 2023, we don't have those disruptions and we've got a lot of the right equipment in the right places. So it is beneficial for us from an operating margin point of view and having the right equipment, not having additional costs with higher, higher lease costs and moving, moving equipment around just to satisfy a contract. So overall, we're in a better position there. Labor. Labor, is, there is still a skill shortage in the industry. There's still, school, still a skill shortage in Australia. I think where we sit as a company, um, being an employer of choice, we're in a better position than others. Not to say that we don't have some challenges and we still have some challenges in, in pockets of our business. So I think we're in a better position than we were last year because we haven't got the situation with border closures and some of the impacts of COVID, but overall there is that still that skill shortage in Australia that it impacts you in some way. And the last one there was volume impact. And I, I think last year we called out two, two areas. One was forestry New Zealand, and you've, you've heard from Michael. The volume impact's the same. We thought potentially the signals were that, that we would see a rebound um, around this time. We're not seeing that. So, and given Mike, Michael's presentation today, um, over the first quarter, the, him and the New Zealand team especially have, have done a, a rate restoration and have also done a rebase of the business in regards to the cost base um, and the customers have, have, have accepted that. So we've done a reset based on what the base, what the base volume looks like today. If the, if the volume improves, then that's another, that's another position for us and it's probably potentially upside for that. The other thing that impacted us last year around volume impacts and disruption and so forth was the wind farm projects and I think you saw a video today in regards to one of the wind farm projects that we've just um, we've been delivering on. Todd's mentioned that we've got a couple of projects that we've already locked away and, and I think we've basically got a pipeline of maybe a couple of years in those wind, wind farm projects so they seem to be not had the backlog that they had or the backlog now kept, it's got to the position where it's live now and we're just seeing those projects come through which are, which are good projects for us. So overall that's the update. So some things similar, some things better, nothing really, nothing anything worse. That takes me <coughs> to the quarter one update financials. We're really pleased with the performance of the business in quarter one which is ahead of our internal expectations and gives us a high degree of confidence in our full year guidance. Volumes in most parts of, it, of, it, of the business were strong and margins benefited from high asset utilisation. 
continued productivity initiatives and rate restorations across multiple parts of our business. Key highlights in the first quarter included, as I mentioned before, logistics and infrastructure business unit has, been, has seen strong volumes across containers, agri, vehicle and railway volumes through, through the AAT facility. And the ports and bulk business, has, which has experienced continued solid results from the energy and the resource mining sector, which has partly offset the continued weakness in, in forestry. And obviously, there's a rate restoration going on in the back half of the year. And Patrick's, as I mentioned before, has also delivered a strong result in line with the expectations. Final slide for the day. Full year 23 outlook. So despite the increasing inflationary environment and economic uncertainty, CUBE confirms its previous full year 23 full year guidance. This outlook and key assumptions remain consistent with the guidance we provided with our full year 22 results as summarised on this slide. And as we, as we highlighted during the course of today, we see multiple opportunities for continued growth for the remainder of full year 23 and beyond. And we are most excited about Q's future than we ever have been. Thank you for the day. And we're going to... Oh, I, didn't, I didn't move the slide, sorry. Oh, no, sorry. Actually, I'm, I've got one more video. Sorry, this is a really important video. <laughs> have you had enough of videos? Yeah, no, yes, you can talk. Yeah. Um, you've heard a lot about our infrastructure, our supply chain, our expertise, our systems, and everything we've put together as a product. But this doesn't happen without our people. And this is a video about our people and the culture we've built over 15 years. It's an unbelievable culture. Um, so I just want to show, I just want to finish on a, on a video that's got a number of our people being interviewed about Cube, and we're nothing without our people. It's such a diverse group of good people. The company is really supported and family orientated, which is important to me, having a young family. I think that the Cube opportunities are endless. Often we'll do a variety of different things within the same week. Um, so I enjoy that. You know, you do everything from acting as a dogman to a crane driver, excavator driver on logs or driving a gantry on the ingots and handling wood chips today. Like, it's, it's a bit different every time. So it's good. I've been here since I was a teenager and I moved up through the ranks. I basically worked at basically every freight terminal in Victoria. So what I enjoy most about this place is obviously the culture and the people that I work with. Such a male-dominated industry, a mining industry. I've always felt welcome here at Cube. I've been able to progress within my career, recently moving up into the supervisor role, but before that, getting training throughout a lot of the fixed plant machinery and the mobile equipment. I enjoy working for Cube due to their commitment to upskill and investment in their people and their families. I enjoy working for Cube due to our people. They're at the centre of everything that we do. Uh, our business is all about modernisation, innovation, technology, driving valuable return for our customers. I find that you know I have a quite supportive management team. 
you know, we're able to get the resourcing that we require to help contribute to the success of the overall operation. I enjoy working with my colleagues here. They sort of give me a lot of different perspectives and, you know, I enjoy my day-to-day -day working experience because of the great colleagues I, I have here. I feel like there's a lot of uh, job opportunities, you know, kind of going through the ranks. Very good teamwork and uh, communication between everyone. Obviously, the bosses help out and we help out the bosses, so everything's good. I've worked with you for near on 15 years. Uh, it's been a very enjoyable experience. I've really appreciated uh, the opportunities that Cube have given me to grow and develop uh, into a manager. The freedom uh, to make decisions and, and manage the site how I best see fit, it's been fantastic. The, the different challenges that you go through on a daily basis, but with the support that we have uh, both on the floor and uh, higher management, so I enjoy these little challenges just to get the, the brain uh, ticking. Actually being a new recruit to CUBE, I think the sense of family is the first thing that's really prevalent to me, it stands out, being supported. Um, that's from, uh, from many perspectives, everything down to the tools I require to do my job and feeling that um, management support behind me when we're, we have difficult circumstances that we have to work through. Having the capacity to, to think clearly and make the right decision and be able to foresee your potential consequences and being comfortable with that. So for me, Cube, I feel like I'm in a really safe space in that regard within my work environment with really strong support. Yeah, um, pretty powerful one. If you get a chance, you can talk to Sarah. She she did all the interviewing there, and it was all unscripted. They they knew the, they knew the question, but they weren't given the answers. So. Yeah, very well done, Sarah. Paul, we question time now. Uh, if I can call all the presenters up to the stage, we'll have a panel, so feel free to rip with any questions that you wanted to ask earlier, didn't get a chance, or any new questions. Uh, and we're also taking questions for anyone online, so if you submit them and we'll work through them uh, over the next 30 minutes or so. I think I'm up over, over here, Scott Ryle. Um, uh, probably, probably a question for Paul and Mark. And Mark, I don't want to disrupt your um, your probation period, but you are the, uh, the the person up there who's 15 years shy of the uh, of the rest of the panel in terms of your experience in Cube. So I wonder um, if you could give us what you believe uh, you're going to bring to Cube over the next call it three to five years, and maybe Paul, what, uh, and, I, and I mean in terms of fresh eyes, fresh approaches, you know, capital, um, uh, you know, maybe a different way of thinking about capital, uh, and Paul, what are you looking uh, for, uh, for Mark to deliver for the business, please, as long as he gets through his probation? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Scott. <laughs> Could have asked me next week. Um, <laughs> look, you know, I'm only the second CFO that Cube have had. Right, like so, it's big shoes to fill with with Paul. Um, when we were negotiating my entry into the business, Paul was going to leave, and then uh, right at the last minute, he's like, oh, "You know, can we come up with something that works works for both of us?" And we had a gap in head of investor relations. From my perspective, I couldn't be happier um, in terms of uh, having Paul and his capabilities. 
I think from, you know, there'll be a lot of the same from me, right? The business has been very successful under the, the leadership of these guys and, and the financial guidance of Paul. So there'll be an element of uh, much of the same. We're very much alike in regards to discipline, financial discipline, investment di uh, disciplines. I think my background's different to Paul's in terms of I've, you know, I've worked in finance functions from the ground up and I've, I've been across a number of different industries and a number of different companies, work with Brambles, industrial services, etc. I've worked with like businesses. The Brambles industrial services business was very much like Todd's business. Um, and, and we did weekly P&Ls and monthly P&Ls. We had that type of uh, 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 sort of discipline. I think uh, I've seen good and I've seen bad. I think I can bring, uh, reinvigorate the, the finance function. There's been a lot of people who've been for a long time. I think I need to, bring, to look to bring in some new leadership and develop that from within the business as well. So that'll be a challenge. Uh, the business identified that um, before I started that they need to move to a new ERP system. So I've got to bed that down because that's going to take our, our capabilities from a financial reporting um, and uh, having decision support to a new level than what we've had because we've been you know, very reliant on spreadsheets for a long period of time, which um, this is also going to help uh, our auditors over there in terms of how, uh, how they go about their business. So I think, I think, you know, I think there's going to be an element of the same in terms of discipline, governance. I'm, I'm, a very, um, uh, I'm unemotional about, uh, about any specific parts of the business. So when we look at acquisitions, for example, my job is to deploy the capital in the best way for Cube so I can challenge these guys. I'm not sort of aligned to, to any of them as well um, yet, <laughs> except for Paul. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, look, I think I can, you know, there'll be some same and some new stuff coming in. Just, just while you've got the floor, can you just talk about the implementation of your ERP, please, and yeah. uh, timetable yeah. uh, deliverables? Yep. Does that mean everyone will get weekly accounts or does that... Uh, uh, well, they get that. JD gets that now. I mean, we've, we've yeah. been using PeopleSoft for a while. That's pretty much end of life. We're, we're um, implementing Oracle in the cloud. So it's the, uh, you know, the, the, the newest and greatest. There's an elements to that. I mean, it's been going on since about March of this year. Uh, we go live uh, 1st of March in, in 23, so next, next uh, calendar year. Um, we will have uh, a, you know, a, a pretty comprehensive suite of uh, products uh, from Oracle, it'll mean that we will get. There is a lot of um, spreadsheets, as I mentioned, and uh, you know, you're translating data from the, and from an or, uh, PeopleSoft system into spreadsheets and spreadsheets and spreadsheets. We're going to eliminate a vast amount of that. So we'll, I think we'll have our month ends will come quick, become quicker. I'll get information a lot quicker than I currently do and present it up to, to the board, etc. I think we'll have a lot more flexibility in our reporting as well. Uh, our statutory half year and full years will become a lot easier than they are now because we've got some horrendously uh, horrendous models which you know have, uh, have just served the business well but they're not easy and, and they're clunky. I've got a few people in my team back there who'll be uh, uh, they're looking forward to the implementation of, uh, of that Oracle system which will help them out. So I think it's going to and then there's other elements to it as well which we can look to into the future, you know, more in a more integrated product. And we've got a suite of different applications across our business billing systems and maintenance systems, etc. Um, and I think we can look to sort of how we can uh, you know, build a, a new ecosystem that's going to take the business forward for the next 10, 10 plus years. Yeah. Paul? So, should I keep him? <laughs> No, I'll tell you offline. No, no, Mark's been fantastic. From day one, um, you know, you go through the interviewing process, you've got a number of candidates and you go through the whole process. I mean, 
Mark stood out straight away as a person who could really fit culturally with, with the team. And from day one, um, I told him to get around the business and I think he did it times 10. So that was, that was really, really fantastic. And he's got his head right around the business. And I felt within, oh, within a month, you know, I felt like he'd been here for two or three years. So he brings, he brings a lot of strengths, I think, to, to our team. Uh, and as, as, as um, Mark has mentioned, you know, having Paul Paul's, um, stay with the business is also a great asset for us. So I, I can't, I, I couldn't wish for anything any better. I mean, so I mean, Paul, Paul wanted. To, I, I can say, Paul, you, you wanted to step down for certain reasons for three days a week, and we, we've accommodated that, and, and so it's worked out really well. The only thing I will say is that, Mark, if you you put a slide up, and it's and there's a concept on that slide, but I modify it. <laughs> That's my slide. <laughs> you can have it. Anything else? No. Thank you. G'day, Paul and Mark. Um, Jake Kakanis from Jarden over here. Um, just a question on the return on capital targets that you've outlined where you are currently. Just wondering, can we get there if the market does roll over in the second half? It sounds like it's going quite well at the moment. I'm sure you've got line of sight now into the end of the half too. How do we think about that through the cycle if you're telling us you're a GDP sort of business, if that does roll over? And then the second part, is there any conversation amongst the board about how contestable the invested capital base is? Is there anything in there that troubles both of you as new leaders coming in? Yeah, maybe I'll answer that second one first. not from what I've seen. I'll let Paul talk to as well. I mean, obviously, Morebank was a you know a big a big investment over multiple years. I didn't realise even myself until until we pulled those slides together that the first investment was back in 2007. Being able to monetise that asset in the way that they did at the time that they did has been fantastic. Uh, I don't think you know I haven't seen anything in the business that I've seen so far that I I uh, don't think uh, fits or, or or is getting the right returns or that we can't fixed to get the right returns and obviously we're a portfolio of businesses and we, um, not, not everything will fire at one point in time and for example, you know, as we've spoken about in the last short period of time, the, you know, Michael's business in forestry had gone through a tough patch but they've re, re, uh, recalibrated that. So, so no, I, look, I'll, I'll let Paul jump in as well but in terms of, you know, returns overall, like we've, you know, we've guided in at the end of August to a strong continued growth into 23. Um, we've got it again, reiterated that again today. So I think you know you should take away that we're pretty confident um, that we've got some good momentum. Uh, we put in that disclaimer at the bottom around economic factors and everything. You know, but that we're fully aware of the, the chance of a uh, you know of a bit of a backward step from an, uh, the economy perspective. The high interest, higher interest rates, higher uh, higher inflation, they're, they're factored into to the, into our guidance. So it would have to be something pretty material, which is you know, materially adverse, which uh, would impact us, which is probably more of a, a global event which might uh, disrupt us for FY23. We haven't really, uh, you know, I haven't really guided to FY24, although you've heard comments from today around the, uh, the level of, uh, of uh, positiveness across uh, from each of the business units and Patrick's, et cetera, in terms of what, what we feel that business can deliver can, you know, going forward. So... Those returns on capital, I think the growth in return on capital, uh, you know, should definitely continue into uh, as we report it June 23. Yeah, I, is this working? Yeah. J- just add on from that, I, I think 
Um, you know, my, my slide earlier, just talking about you know, many opportunities for, for growth in our business and the way that we can use some of our, our value drivers. Um, I mean, you'd probably never be recession-proof, but we're, we're, a, we're a long way towards that. Um, so some of our markets, even in a recession, will, you know, agri-market, the mining sector, the energy market, um, non-discretionary spending uh, in, in the logistics space and imports. There's a lot of parts of our business that you feel that would still, would still be strong or, or be solid um, if everything's come to stop. The other, thing, the other thing with our business at the moment <clears throat> and one of the things we've been doing is we've been very selective at the moment and you know, I guess you guys are all waiting for another acquisition or something like that and, and we've been very selective because we're quite busy in, in doing what we're doing in front of us at the moment and restoring rates and dealing with inflationary stuff. Um, so we, we, we're able to be very agile and pivot. We're sort of managing our, our, our pipeline. I mean, I know that pipeline's always going to change a bit but... You know, we've been selective both, you know, through tenders. We've been selective through acquisitions at the moment. So, you know, if things if things were to slow, we could we could we could pull another gear and, on certain things. And um, so we've got a lot of things a lot of things in our favour. You know, I mean, we're just not one dimensional in our business, and I think that's what we we're trying to put across today. And especially in my earlier slides, I was trying, trying to make that point that we've got many many opportunities to grow. And we've got many opportunities to really pivot and you know, fix our margins even better um, than we probably have previously. And um, you know, it's sort of taken a few the inflationary thing to to sort of realise that or or how far we go. And you know, some parts of the business have gone a bit quicker than others, and some because of the dynamics with the customer base takes a little bit longer. But we're able to sort of we're very diverse, and it's actually it's as much as it's a a growth. Um, asset of ours, it's also a very defensive asset of, of Cube that we've built up over the time. So, I think the other part, the other one of your question was contestable, contestable capital at a board level. I think uh, our, our board has a lot of faith in us, and obviously they challenge us in regards to when we're spending capital, like like any board will. But you know, they know that we go through a fair bit of rigor. Um, over the course, I mean, it goes through many hands and it gets to our investment co and, and we put things up as to the board on a track record where we will provide the board with a briefing note. It's not a capex yet. We're just briefing them to say we're getting close here but we, we don't want to surprise you guys because we're going to call for some money. And then sometimes those briefing notes just go away and they're asking, what, what happened to that thing? I said, well, we're not there. We decided to go somewhere else. So, I mean, I think that gives the board a bit of confidence that, you know, we're at a stage where we're going somewhere, we find a red flag. I think, as we said before, we measure things you know, by the financial returns, We've, we measure things by the strategic fit, we me- measure things by the longevity of that asset. You know, is, it, is it just going to be a five-year cycle for us? We're not here to, to buy something just, just to give us a sugar hit. And then we, then we ass- assess the risk on the way. So if something pops up, we, you know, we make a decision. Um, if... If things are changed a bit, we might make a slight. We might make we, our risk, risk appetite might become a little bit more. But at the moment, our risk, risk appetite's a little bit less at the moment because we're in a really good space. So we, we'll just, and that's just around the margins in regards to assessing that risk. So hopefully that answers the question.
Andre from UBS. Um, <clears throat> and apologies if this is sort of laboring the, the question a little bit. But the, you, you talk quite a bit about, I guess, 10% uh, ROSI as a hurdle. But typically, how much headroom would you expect when you actually commit to something? So more like an expected return on a project. Um, so that's kind of the first part. And is that... Is, is that materially different from, say, the early days of Cube where you were focusing on building scale, building a network? Um, I guess I'm trying to understand if that's, if that's a strict approach to how you invest, how do you reconcile that with you know, the group return at the moment being below that hurdle? Hello? Um, in terms of you know different investment opportunities, I mean there's a whole host of factors. If it's something that is in the sweet spot of what we're doing right now, well then you know it might be 10 or slightly above 10 that we're comfortable with. But if it's something that the guys are saying, well we've you know we've done a little bit of this but not quite, or we're getting in a little bit deeper, we might want to put a bit more of a risk factor into it to uh, to, to, to buffer for that. So it, it, it's there's no hard and fast rule, but uh, I think as as Paul mentioned, we, we have a monthly investment committee meeting where we all attend and, and a couple of others and all of the opportunities are presented and we, we decide as a group which ones to progress and which ones not to and um, that includes acquisitions. And um, the, the, as you can imagine, there's so many different factors. Uh, you know, but if it's something that's in our wheelhouse, yeah, probably it's uh, the, the 10 or a tick over that we might be happy with. I mean... Just, just from a historical point of view, I don't think, and Paul, you can jump in here too, right? It's part of your, <laughs> your old world, but we, I don't, we always had a couple, you know, a couple of points above our, our whack that was, was probably where we saw our minimum or our range. And then if there was something that we felt was going to hold really strategic value, it might be an infrastructure asset that we know we can build around, then we might take a different approach to that. Or there's something like we're going to build a supply base in, in Indonesia where we, we made sure that those hurdle rates were much higher because, because of the risk element. So we, we, did, we did take into account sort of a bit of a range and I, I don't think that's changed. I mean, the only thing that's changed is our cost, our cost of funds might increase a little bit so we, we've got to just move those couple of points uh, to the north a bit as we look, look at things going forward. So... Um, yeah, well, what I'd add to that, you would have seen on Mark's slide when he's talking about acquisitions and investments, we look at a range of metrics, and one of the primary metrics we have and will continue to look at is our IRR, so our post-tax IRR above OAC. And the reason we do that rather than just ROKI is ROKI is a very short-term accounting measure, so it's one-year earnings and only looks at the underlying EBITDA in that year, whereas the IRR takes into account the time of the project and the returns. So something like a BlueScope project you would never have done it if you needed a one-year ROKI of 10% because, as uh, I think Paul touched on, we're spending money for 18 months, 24 months before we earn a dollar. So ROKI, sort of the 10% plus, is at run rate earnings what we want to achieve, but IRR will take into account the, the timing. And we've always, and we'll take a long-term view and a risk-adjusted view. So hence why we're confident that the ROKI will trend up above that 10% because we are confident that overall our investment returns have met uh, the IRR target, but there sometimes will be a disconnect in timing between those two metrics.
Just maybe one for uh, for John, perhaps on uh, intermodal uh, rail and uh, the, the port shuttle movements. You sound very confident in um, uplift coming through uh, around Australia, but particularly out of uh, Port Botany. Can you maybe give us a sense of what's driving your confidence in that outlook over the next couple of years? Oh, I think I was pretty clear on it last time. The modal shift is happening. I believe it's happening for sure. Uh, on an interstate piece, definitely from a viewpoint of truck drivers, shortage of truck drivers. That's definitely happening. Um, uh, the port shuttle stuff could have come on a bit earlier, but Patrick's uh, development took a bit longer on the automation piece, and then more bank has taken a bit longer to get that automation piece up and going. So now over the next two or three years, I mean, in, in New South Wales, from a, a port transport business, we're down to 50 trucks there. We've always been low like that because we're doing most of the haul by rail, and that will continue, and we'll... Logos will build out. Uh, we've got a big demand. You know, we're holding off at the moment because we want to have a great service for these people to go through. So we want to get the automation right there and then the metal shift will happen. It's happening. I mean, uh, our major competitors in the market now, he's sort of going around that path. Um, the other rail companies have looked to do uh, smaller type. IMEX facilities, there's about five now in Sydney market. We'll obviously have the biggest one. We've got two of the other four, whatever the number is. So, no, it's uh, here to stay. I've been living that dream since 2001. I've been talking about modal shifts since 2010. Stopped talking about it in 2013. I'm back talking about it. So, I'm very confident about that. And I think you'll see uh, the IMAX volumes really, you know, if I'm sitting in front of you in two or three years, I don't, probably a bit more bullish than what Mark's slide says, but Mark's taken up the size that Paul would have written years ago. So, I think, yeah, we're right there. So, no? Thank you. J- JD, I've got one from the... Uh, online participants. Um, can you talk about warehousing a little more? Other providers have commented they're close to full but are having less inventory actually leaving. Are we seeing something similar? And a, a related question on the, our current warehousing capacity and what percentage growth of that 60 hectares are you expecting? Um, so we, I did mention in the, that we are full currently at the moment and um, so we've actually got uh, product in containers that we would on hire through our container hire and sales business, so we're at capacity at the moment. Um, we're seeing stock go out, but we're seeing trans- you know, we are seeing stock go out. Um, so I, I don't think that's a, a major issue at the moment. I mean, it's we're all full, so it's, it's a bit of an issue. And I, I mentioned that I think we're going to bring on 150,000 square metres. That was your other question. So we've got uh, obviously we're in negotiations at Logos with Logos for, for where at the moment, which is close to happening. I think. Um, uh, we've got some warehousing going up in in, uh, in, in Brisbane and uh, we've just taken on a new site in WA and just about taken on a new site in Victoria. So there's, there's stuff coming on now because every state's full. That's the reality of it. So uh, we see we see there's been a good rate restoration in the warehousing piece. Obviously the, the market's gone up in, in rental rates, so that means the pallet rate's got to go up and they have. So I'm pretty positive about it. Thanks. And then for Paul... Um, in terms of the comments Mark talked about with P&L ownership and accountability, um, how do we action or reward for collaboration across the different business units? It's, um, it's a common sense approach. That's what we do. When we, when we assess um, our REM at the end of the year, we, we take all those things into consideration and, and sometimes it needs me to make that decision as well but everyone puts their case up and we, we do that. It's, it's a one cube approach so 
I, I don't know if everyone got the feel, but you know, we we had a lot of. Um, and while that slide where I, t- I put all the brand boxes up that have been created over the time, and there's probably um, 14, 14 brand boxes. I mean, if you took a solo approach, you could have you could have created them into little small divisions, um, but we never done that. You know, we've got we've got two business units in the operating division. We've got shared a lot of shared stuff, and these three guys have to work across each other. I mean, these two more than more than, but there's been a, obviously an interaction between the three even more in recent times. And we just we make those considerations, and when we when we've got a a rim review at the end of the year, if Michael says to me his energy team did this, this, and this, and we assess that, and then we we always have a bit of bit of fat in our um, STI STI pool at head office, and I and I allocate it accordingly for those for those reasons. So, um, and we'll never stop doing that because that's that's how we work, that's how we roll. We all share in the we all share in the benefits. And then another question, probably for you, Paul. Please elaborate on our ESG considerations for acquisitions, e.g. do we price carbon, do we factor in social licence in any particular sensitive sectors? Um, in sensitive sectors, we're not looking... Obviously, we're steering away from sensitive sectors where we can. I mean, it can become problematic if we like a business and 5% or 10% of its revenue might come from a sensitive sector. And so we've got to consider that going forward because we don't want to lose the opportunity. But if it was 100% in a sensitive area, that's not, that's, I, won't get, I won't get past the investment committee. Um, in regards to carbon pricing, we're not, we're not exactly there yet. Um, and we're working through that as, as everything involves. I think I mentioned before, you know, the commitment we're doing at the moment is around a lot of trials um, and just having some live trials. So when we do these certain trials, you know, Todd's doing an electric truck trial at the moment. Um, um, Michael's doing a hydrogen piece at the moment. Michelle, um, John's just ordered a number of forklifts in a big order that we want a couple of electric reach stackers in that to see how they run off, off the roof of some of our warehouses. There's a number of other little projects. There's about 20 projects at the moment, and so we're committing ourselves through that. And at some stage, we've got to consider carbon, you know, a carbon pricing in, in how we how we look at things. Um, but every every capex for the last two years now with the capex forum has to have consideration around around climate change. And um, if we're buying a, buying a business that's got some old dirty fleet and don't have the same standard as us. We've got to take that in, into consideration that we might, you know, we might we have to move this fleet to an Enviro five or Enviro six type of uh, a truck or an, uh, a tier three or tier four um, uh, forklift, you know, in in a shorter period of time than we normally would, and, and it comes at a cost for us. But we're making those we're making those commitments and disciplines at the moment, and that's all around still having relying on fossil fuel because you know the gap between fossil fuels. And alternative greener is, is a big gap, and that's why we want to do all these trials and just see how that technology works, what the cost difference is, do some, do some live commitments, and um, hopefully in time the, the, gap's, the gap's bridged or we make other decisions in our business going forward in regards to what we want to look like and how we do as we, as we, we work through this de- decarbonisation area. But as I said before, I think we're, we're at the top end of commitment in logistics companies. I mean... Some of our competitors aren't doing anything, 
And so we've got, we've got to just get that balance right at the moment. But we want to be in a position for a number of reasons. One, for the planet. But, but the two, the, the, probably the two pieces of this is that if you're in front of the game and there is a carbon tax or there's a pricing tax, you're going to be in front of the game. So, and that's where we want to be. We want to make sure we can turn that tap on. If, we're, if, we're, if it's in four years' time, three years' time, then we've, and we've made a lot of progress on our... We'll, we'll reap that benefit, even though it might come at a cost for us for now. But we've got to balance that up. And you guys in the room being shareholders, you don't want us to throw th- millions and millions and millions of dollars at this and not be profitable and not get a dividend as well. I'm sure you don't. So it's a challenging time, but I think, we're, I think we've got a very responsible plan at the moment. Hi, it's uh, Paul Butler from Christmas again. Uh, question I want to ask, uh, is probably for Paul and Mark. Um, you've, you've talked today about... Um, you know, parts of the business having infrastructure characteristics and, and I completely get that it's a high quality business because of the integrated services you offer uh, and, it's, and it's highly diversified but, but sort of to, to what extent do we sort of think about Cube as being infrastructure because when I think about an infrastructure business it'd be a business where management has enough visibility on it to be able to give quantitative earnings guidance and, and you, you give I mean, you give guidance, but I'd describe it as being sort of qualitative um, earnings guidance in terms of where it goes. And, and obviously, this comes back to the risk profile of business and the valuation multiple that we sort of think about putting on it. So, I, I just wonder if you talk about, you know, the, the sort of guidance you give and, you know, whether you ever get to the point where you can give more quantitative guidance because your visibility of how earnings are going to progress is, 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 is clearer. I might have a first go at that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what we'd definitely say is it's got infrastructure-type characteristics and, and the challenge around quality, quantitative guidance is we don't run the business short-term and there are short-term factors that can impact numbers. So, for example, a vessel slipping from June into July can actually impact our, our numbers. Um, you have things like drought, which, which can come there. So we're, we're never running the business short-term. We recognise it is an operating business and there are operating challenges. I guess what we're really saying is the diversification of the business and the markets we're in whereby take containers, Australia's not going to manufacture, so we know there's going to be a core volume of containers coming through the ports. It may vary plus or minus 5% depending on economic conditions. Market share may change 1% to 3% between Patrick's and the other stevedores. We can't predict definitively how many times the logistics and infrastructure business is going to touch the container, but we know there will always be that baseline recurring revenue and recurring profits. We can't predict, it's not like, I guess sort of akin to a toll road where they can't, they know there'll be a core level of vehicles but they may not pick that precisely. And because we don't want to be worried about are we going to hit that exact number, we want to actually do what's right for the business. JD starting that intermodal business. Whether it's loss making, whether it's a small profit, again we don't want to be driven by not doing something that we think is right for the long term because we're running to short term guidance which is why we're trying to balance giving the market a flavour for how we're seeing the market, how we're seeing the business, in, so directionally, but still running it for the right long-term decisions. So that's how we think about it. I'm going to leave it at that too. <laughs> Thank you. And Anthony Mulder from Jefferies. So 
Cube's no longer a small business and, and a day like today is more than we've ever seen from the Cube, which is part of that journey on and taking the, the market, I guess, along that journey. Mark, if, as you've come into this business, how do you help the market go forward from here? With, is it greater disclosure? Is it work in progress capital being disclosed? Is it more statistics? How do you think about how you, as the CFO, can help us more understand the business and quantify the upside for Q? There you go. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah, look, um, you know, I've been involved in a lot of public companies and I, I think if you look at my track record, you know, my last CFO role was Vocus and I, I made a concerted effort to try and um, help the investors and the analysts and the market generally understand more about that business. I think um, Cube have been very much heads down, just get on with it and the results will speak for itself. Um, we haven't had an investment of a full-time head of investor relations until now. So I think, you know, with Paul moving into that role, I think, you know, I definitely have an appetite to disclose more and help help you guys understand the business more. It is complex, as we found out, as we've been saying. We've been, we, we say all the time we're diverse, we're diverse, and, and, and as you've, you probably come out today thinking, wow, yeah, even more so than I even imagined. But it's just trying to find the right balance and the right time. I think it'll be a journey as well. So, you know, we won't go backwards from today. We'll, we'll sort of continue to move forward. And I think, you know, obviously um, before we start to release information, we need to be comfortable about the integrity of that information and, and uh, it's, it's very supportable. So there'll be elements of that that will play into how quickly we can sort of expand upon our disclosures. Question for John: um, How would you describe the conditions for grain right now? Like, are they how unusual versus you know through cycle rate of production um, uh, is the industry going through right now? And, and and therefore, how do you prepare for maintaining utilisation and profitability uh, if volume was to slow down? Okay. Um, well, how do I describe the conditions at the moment? There'll be a there'll be a fair big carryover from last year's harvest for starters. It's going to be a very big harvest this year, a bit later, but it'll be a very big harvest. So we've probably got best case of three years in front of us for starters. Uh, historically, when there's been a complete drought, the Quattro facility actually imported 850,000 tonnes of grain. It turned itself into an import facility, and before we owned that, they imported a small bit of I think it was some sort of yeah, something that imported something. So we would look to do that. That's when it gets really drastic. That they pretty much that flour was needed to keep um, Vegas Delight going, actually, for a company called Manildra. So, so it's cute. you've seen how diverse we are, and Michael's business handles a lot of fertilizer. So there's a lot of range of things that we could do. Um, but you know, without being too negative, uh, too positive about it all, we've got three years ahead of us. It probably doesn't looks like three years of maybe not 4 million tonne, but 2.6 million is still a good number in these businesses at the moment where it stands. So, no, I'm, I'm pretty... Uh, I understand what you're trying to say, but I'm, I was hoping we're going to keep away from droughts today because I don't think it's the forum. Just got a last question. Just Matt Ryan from Baron Joey just asking about um, the idea of margin expansion. I think, Paul, on one of your slides, you sort of 
target that as a, I think you called it a medium to long term target. I guess if we look at the operating division, it's been quite a lot of volatility when you sort of look at one year within logistics versus ports and bulk. But I guess over the last six or seven years, if you combine them all, margins have been reasonably flat. So what are you sort of thinking about moving forward in the context of the diversified business that you've just outlined? And I guess just given how diverse it is, how hard is it going to be for you guys to get margin expansion within that operating area? 